Hello everyone, welcome back to the Film Buds podcast, and also welcome to the very first uh, monthly special. Today we're going to be covering the films of Steven Soderbergh, which includes Out of Sight, Traffic, The Informant, Contagion, and Magic Mike. And so thank you so much for downloading, we really, really do appreciate it. It helps out the show, and it's also just another chance for us to talk about movies, so it's a nice thing to do. But uh, first and foremost, my name is Henry. Uh, this is Braden. And today is just us two. Chloe, unfortunately, could not make it. Uh, she's got school and other things going on, but hopefully she'll be back on the regular show sometime soon. Uh, but yeah, so just us two today, but that's plenty enough. So They're lacking commitment to the cause. Yeah. Just terrible, terrible. Well, Brain, how you doing, man? You hanging in there? I'm hanging in there. Um, bit of sleep deprivation. I was up late catching up with my Soderbergh films. Mm-hmm. Things have been hectic lately, so. But I wanted to make sure it was all under the belt, and I absolutely had to rewatch Traffic because, mm-hmm. like, No Country for Old Men. You know, once you start it, it's so. You good. gotta finish it. You can't stop watching it. So. That cost me a little sleep, much as No Country for Old Men did. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Good film. Damn it. Worth, worth watching. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, so I think, I mean, the show itself, the structure is going to be relatively simple. Uh, it's just going to be, we're not going to have any news or listener questions or anything. It's just going to be strictly reviews for the most part. And we may change it up depending on how this one comes out for future ones. But right now it's just going to be covering the five films and talking about them. So it's going to be a, a, a good show. Um, but I guess, first of all, we can talk about our, not relationship with Soderbergh, but our kind of how we got into his films, if, if at all. And uh, Brent, so what was the first one that you saw? Honestly, and I didn't even realize this at the time, there was a film that he did back early, mid-90s called Kafka. Mm-hmm. And that was actually the very first film of his which I saw, and I didn't even realize it until he was going back through his filmography, because I saw that at such an early time, and I wasn't familiar with Soderbergh until a few years later. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't make the connection in terms of him as a director and paying, you know, paying attention to specifically to directors. But it's a little-known film. Jeremy Irons is in it. He's always good. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of an interesting story about a fellow who I think his name's actually Franz Kafka, but it's not the Franz Kafka who's the author. It's another character who lives a, a parallel life, a mm-hmm. uh, fictional character who lives a parallel life. His name's Franz Kafka. He works at an insurance agency. He's a failed writer, and he somehow gets wound up in all of these strange sort of surreal episodes that touch on a lot of the themes or, or imagery or so forth that appear in actual Franz Kafka novels. And it sort of used um, a device, which I think is a bit, I don't know, staid, old, something by now. But it, it starts off in, I think, black and white when he's living his humdrum rot life. When it goes and cuts into the sort of surreal mm. uh, episodes, it switches to color for this middle portion of the film and then flips back to black and white towards the end. And I thought, you know, at that time, being young, not having seen a lot of films that do anything like that, um, that was... That was interesting. I thought that was kind of cool at the time. And so uh, that was actually the first film of his I saw, and I quite like it. Critics were kind of lukewarm on it, uh, particularly after, I think, the, the commercial success of Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Yeah. But um, that was the first film of his I 
saw and actually really, really liked, but I didn't connect him at the time. And so I would have to say the first film of his that I saw and really drew me in was probably Traffic, which we played here at the theater. And I saw that night. That's when I went, Soderbergh, he's amazing. <laughs> and then, you know, obviously, I'm a huge fan of the Ocean's Eleven series. And then Out of Sight, and we'll, we'll talk about a little bit about that. But, yeah. but the first film of his I saw was actually Kafka. The first film of his I saw where I, I went, Soderbergh was Traffic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... The more, so the last year or two, I've been getting into more Soderbergh, and the more I watch of his films, the more I like him. And he's done a lot of movies, and I think that while we're only covering five today, we, I hope we chose a, a good mix of the films, because he he's done a lot of different genres, and uh, he's a very versatile filmmaker. But for me, I think the first ones that I can remember are probably the Ocean's films, which Ocean's Eleven is still one of my favorites, but... Uh, we'll get to the informant in a little bit, but that's the one that I'm. That's my favorite, and uh, then as well as some others that we'll be talking about. So, I'm very now a huge fan of Soderbergh, and I really, really like him. And yeah, he's he's very underrated. You know, you never really hear much acclaim for him. I mean, you hear him getting like, oh, from director Steven Soderbergh, but you never really. Well, that's the thing is I think I think a lot of his films are, I wouldn't say maligned, but uh, underestimated or undervalued. Yeah. Because uh, on the sur- on the surface, if you look at it like like, and we'll talk about this with Magic Mike, but if you look at it on the surface or or probably Girlfriend Experience, which I need to see. Damn yeah. Henry, where's oh, that DVD? Sorry, sorry, I should have brought it. <laughs> um, but but he deals with people who sort of uh, on the fringe, like Logan Lucky, mm-hmm. the people sort of on the fringe of society who don't necessarily fit in. And so um, part of it might be that, part of it might be the, 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 the subject matter. You know, Logan Lucky takes place around a, a racetrack. Uh, Girlfriend Experience deals with people in the escort service. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Magic Mike deals with male strippers, right? Yeah. And so um, these sort of strange, weird, on the fringe, salacious things probably draw people to the box office. But that's just that's just the surface, and there's a lot more sort of human uh, condition mm-hmm. elements to the stories that he tells. And so I think people just see the surface and think, "Oh, it's a Soderbergh film; it'll be fun, it'll be funny, looking lucky. Oh, it'll be mm-hmm. funny." And da, 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 da. But there's there's a lot more to it, and. In terms of even even in terms of his direction, it's exactly great. well. I mean, his the craftsmanship of his films is spectacular. Yeah. It's always spectacular. Mm-hmm. Um, but people just sort of look at the subject matter, and either that that's what draws them in or turns them off, mm-hmm. and they they lose sight of the the stronger story elements that are that are beneath it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of interesting because I think I mentioned this before: the Coen brothers don't make multi-dimensional characters. Um, a lot of their characters they seem very archetypal, mm-hmm. um, and I think the characters in Soderbergh films are very multifaceted, very deep, very nuanced. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, the Coen Brothers films where you get people with these strong personalities bouncing off one another, whereas Soderbergh films you get people with these very nuanced, complex personalities and how they interact. Um, and I, I think, you know, Magic Mike in particular, out of sight also to an extent, um, shows how these people who would seemingly be at odds 
somehow are drawn yeah. to each other. Right. So, anyhow. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we were talking, or I was talking about Tony Scott on the last weekly show episode, but he's almost, in a way, kind of like Tony Scott, where he's maybe hasn't done a lot of, like, amazing films. He has a couple under his belt, I think, but he doesn't seem to get a lot of credit for more than maybe putting the subject matter on screen. Like, Magic Mike is, like, what you're just saying is seemingly like a girls' night out film, but it's, honest, it's really not. It's, I mean, there's stripping and there's, you know, kind of guys flashing their abs, but it's a pretty dramatic story at times. It's much more character-driven than you would think. Yeah. You know? Um, once I sort of grabbed hold of my, uh, perhaps that's not a good way to phrase that, but once I sort of wrestled my, my, my macho, whatever tendencies, oh, I'm not going to watch a movie about male strippers. Mm. Once I wrestled that sort of under control, uh, so I guess came to terms with my masculinity, whatever the <laughs> enlightened way of, of right. thinking about it is, but, um, you know, once I got past all of that and just watched the film, I mean, it's 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 actually you know a pretty compelling story about mm-hmm. somebody who's just constantly life just constantly beats him down. Yeah, and he just picks himself up and just keeps going and finally makes some good decisions. So, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> excuse me, but yeah, I mean, it's there's a lot more complexity to his stories, and people just see the surface. Oh, escorts. Oh, male strippers. Oh, NASCAR racing. You know. Um, Oh, Casinos, right? The Ocean Series. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a little bit of depth to his films. There's not the same amount of depth to all of his films. Like, obviously, Logan Lucky. Um, Relatively surface level, but there's still a lot to like and there's a lot to get invested yeah, in, you know? There is a little bit about, you know, class and and, and stereotyping and, and this kind of thing and that kind of thing. Um but, you know, Ocean Series, I honestly can't see any kind of depth, really, to the Ocean Series, which is fine. There's still a lot of fun yeah. to watch, and they're well-crafted films. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you get something like Traffic, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is remarkable in terms of both the film itself, how it's made, and the subject matter, and how it, I think how it treats that subject matter, um, which is interesting. And there were a few issues, but I'll discuss those when we actually get to Traffic, but... Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think people just sort of see the surface and not all, again, not all of his films are, are deep and meaningful, but I mean, you know, what, what auteur, what, what director makes all films that are just all meaningful and deep all the time. Yeah. I mean, there might be a few, but like even someone like Spielberg, he's, you know, he'll do Saving Private Ryan and the Schindler's List, Mm -hmm. but then he'll go and do the BFG. Right. You know, and so it's Ready Player One. Yeah. yeah. And both. I mean, all those films in their own way are interesting, even if one it has more depth than the other. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I was just thinking Woody Allen, right? Mm, yeah, that's and he's one. done he's done a lot of really spectacular films. Uh, Hannah and Her Sisters. He's done more recently Blue Jasmine, Match Point, right? Which are mm-hmm. weightier films. Um, may, maybe not necessarily have a point, but they're very dramatic and they're very deep, and they they really delve into the human condition. And then you get a lot of like goofier films. I mean, you know, thinking of his earlier stuff like. Um, well, honestly, even his sort of goofy earlier stuff, I think, Sleeper, Bananas, things like that, had sort of veiled mm-hmm. uh, message Bananas talking about all the uh, sort of, what is it, banana republics and dictators and, and, yeah, and so forth. Something like that. Latin America. Uh, what do they call it? Banana Republic, Banana. 
anyhow, um, and um, sleeper comments on society and futurism and so forth. But um, I'm just thinking of some of his more recent films, uh, Midnight in Paris, right? Mm-hmm. Which was fun, but I don't really see. Yeah, it's more of a experiential. <clears throat> yeah, exactly right. Film for the most part, yeah. And uh, magic, magic in the moonlight, whatever yeah, that which, was, Colin which, Firth which, and Stone. Okay, yeah. It was, yeah. Well, I mean, it was charming. It was wasn't charming. really spectacular. It was charming, but there was no point to it, mm-hmm. right? And then there was Irrational Man, which like no one saw. Yeah, nobody and, went to see that. And Walking Phoenix, which I mean wasn't bad. It was interesting. Yeah. It's creepy. Yeah. But it's, it's charming at times, and so it's it's just another kind of lesser film, but still has its moments. Right. So, no no great director, no great auteur is going to be spot on all the time, have all, nothing but deep, meaningful films. Maybe there's some directors out there who intentionally do that. I'm mm-hmm. only, ever, only ever going to make deep, meaningful social commentary films. Mm-hmm. Um, but notice how a lot of those directors are not well-known Perhaps they have a great deal of respect among among the, so those circles familiar with their works, but uh, not well known at all. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I could see that getting a little overbearing at times. Uh, and so, somebody like Soderbergh, who's able to to wrap these themes a little, perhaps a little covertly in in interesting or different subject matter, um, makes for a more interesting, more watchable experience. And yeah, I mean, he he really. Uh affirms the idea of one for me, one for them. Where it's like, here, I'll make, I don't know, what's a, one of his bigger films? Like, I'll make Ocean's Eleven, but then I want to go make The Girlfriend Experience. Right. Or I want to make, here, I'll make Magic Mike for you, and I'll make, I don't know, Che with Benicio Del Toro, right, right, you know, right. or something he like that. And so he, the... Yeah. And so he's, it's interesting how he works. Mm-hmm. And very prolific. Yeah, in a good way. So yeah, prolific in a good way. I mean, I honestly don't think I've seen anything that was just utter garbage by him. Mm-hmm. I mean, even even his worst films are you know in the grand ranking of schemes are only are still middle of the pack to mm-hmm. higher upper middle of the pack kind of things. Yeah, which is saying a lot uh, because I mean the volume of films out there now. I mean, this past weekend, when when the grosses and actual grosses are so poor, I looked at, at all the films out there, and there were a few good ones. You know, Wind River, Good Time, mm-hmm. um, Logan Lucky. Uh, but, I mean, you know, Hitman's Bodyguard and that Annabelle film, and there's oh, just, just, just a lot of garbage out there. Yeah. There's so much garbage film made. And Soderbergh's films, even even his, not his best efforts, are still considerably better. Oh, by far, yeah. So uh, I'd much rather go watch a mediocre Soderbergh film than watch a really spectacular, I don't know, say, Michael Bay film. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, any day of the week for the most part. Yeah. So, All right, well, let's go ahead and get into the films. Uh, the first one is Out of Sight, obviously directed by Steven Soderbergh, and it came out in 1998 uh, and stars George Clooney, Jennifer Lopez, Don Cheadle, Bing Rames, and Steve Zahn. And the plot synopsis is a career bank robber breaks out of jail and shares a moment of mutual attraction with the U.S. Marshal he has kidnapped. And so just a little background. So the film made $77 million against a $48 million budget, and it has pretty strong critical praise. It's at 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. So 
uh, just kind of another typical range for Soderbergh. Decent box office, but pretty strong critical success. So. Yeah. But so I had only the first time I watched this was just a couple of months ago, or maybe a month and a half ago, and I really liked it. And it's I think it's another underrated film. It's like why is no like not more people talking about this? You know, it's it's so charming and so fun and. Well, rewatching it again, I mean, the the first word that comes to mind after watching this is sexy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, particularly the the scene between Jennifer Lopez and George Clooney in the bar. Oh yeah, when they're in Detroit. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just. And then there's there's literally a steamy sex scene, you yeah. know, in the ba- in the bathroom. In the bathroom, right? Yeah. So. So, um, I mean, the 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 relationship between the two of them aside, I mean, the film, the story is told really well. It's really compelling. And again, you've got this multifaceted character, George Clooney, who is, uh, I mean, he's, 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 he's a career bank robber. That's all mm-hmm. he's done with his life. That's all he knows. That's all he can do. And he's, you know, exceeding, exceedingly good at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it turns out he's, you know, got a strong moral code. And you see this at the end of the film when he goes back to, to help a, a woman who's, you know, in imminent danger of sexual assault. And, you know, he, he's trying to help out his friends Mm -hmm. and he has sort of he he answers to sort of a higher order yeah even though he's a bank robber Mm -hmm. um which is kind of like logan lucky or or something where it's they're they're criminals yes but they're not like unforgivably terrible people well, some yeah. of them are. Yeah, well, yeah. Snoopy, uh, Don Cheadle's character. Yeah, yeah. Well, terrible. Or in terms of the the leads, like Clooney is almost like a Channing Tatum. Yeah. Or or a or the George Clooney character in Ocean's Eleven. You know, mm-hmm. they're they're charming enough where they can kind of win you over. Yeah. So. Well, that's that's the, the thing that I like about Soderbergh is he always seems to to hone in on leading men who have this sort of easy charm this simple charm yeah and you want to hate them but because they're so damn charming and not 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 condescending or arrogant about it you love them i mean yeah. george clooney and channing tatum both i think are, are are just very them as actual people are so personable and charismatic right and then the way that they they bring that charisma onto the screen uh you know you want to hate them they're so good it's freaking good looking, right? In, in and uh, but you can't. You have a hard time despising them, you know. Uh, so, uh, but out of sight. I mean, the first the first word that comes to mind after I watch it is, is you know sexy again because mm-hmm. of the chemistry, particularly between Clooney and, and Lopez, which is phenomenal. Which is like, phenomenal. It's not just good; it's so good. Like yeah. like the scene when they're in the uh, the trunk of the car. Mm-hmm. That's amazing, and then uh, then the dinner scene which you mentioned. Yeah. It's just they're made for each other, really. They really are. I mean, it's 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 really just amazing. I wish the two of them had done more together. Um, which you know, J Lo. I'm thinking of all the films that she did did back in the '90s, all those rom coms and stuff like uh, what was it the that that terrible one where she's a, a maid in a hotel. Oh, I know what you're talking about. I and can't remember the name of it. She did but... another one with uh, Matthew McConaughey, didn't she? Something I think so. I can't, I can't remember all those because mo- I, I didn't see any of them. Yeah. So, but, um, you know, after after performance and something like Out of Sight, you know, obviously she can act. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't, I don't know, I guess 
it was working with Soderbergh, working with Clooney, that brought out some of that skill, perhaps. And right. so maybe if she'd had better better roles in certain pictures, you, you would have seen more of her. But in this, she's spot on. She's yeah. so good. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, we were talking about, uh, who was it, Patty Jenkins talking about Wonder Woman and how that was. Again, I think this is very sort of, in a sense, I wish Chloe were here to yeah. give her two cents. But I think it's a very feminist kind of thing because you have yeah. – this woman who is, uh, she is attractive, but she's smart. She's tough as nails. I'm thinking of the scene where she goes to to, to find uh, Snoopy and runs into that his cousin, Kenneth. Mm-hmm. And Kenneth obviously makes some very aggressive advances on her. And she just puts the beat down on him. Yeah. And doesn't break stride. She looks, you know, great in her boots and her dress. And she just whips out her, her, her nightstand. She just beats the living yeah. tar out of him. Yeah, and, and she's not like overly tough like she couldn't just take on anyone ever you know but she's she's tough enough she's smart enough where it's it's not overbearing but it's still a strong female character and it's very well balanced yeah so i think i think um i really like that character a lot Mm -hmm. um and clooney obviously again he's great uh multi multi multi-faceted multi-level character Mm -hmm. and he portrays it so well and i mean everything that he does Everything that he does for Soderbergh and everything that he did for the Coen brothers. Oh, yeah. Has been spectacular. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, it's it's just, it's it's such a fun film to watch. And I've seen it probably five or six times at this point. And each time I see it, I enjoy it. It's not kind of, oh, it's out of sight again. Oh, here we go with George Clooney and, and Jennifer Lopez. Oh, no, I mean the performances are so good, and the 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 tight the tight scenes, the dramatic scenes are done so well, and um, I mean it's 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 just fun to watch. It's yeah. spectacular. It's, it's almost like what you're just saying. You you wanted to hate Magic Mike, but it's it's so charming. They're like, God damn it, yeah. I like this movie. Exactly. <laughs> you know, you're, and you're so um, I I think that kind of the issue I had with the movie, I think, is just. I think the first half in particular is, I think, the best part. It's so charming. And then the second half gets a little too heavy into the plot. Mm-hmm. And then there's the disconnect uh, of George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez, and they're not on screen together all that much. And so I feel like it does kind of drag a little bit in the second half for me. But other than that, I have no real complaints. Like, Don Cheadle's great. And that's another thing uh, with Soderbergh. His supporting performances can be just as good as the leads, like in Logan Lucky and Ocean's, the Ocean series. And in this, like Bing Rain, Steve Zahn, and Cheadle are all great. Yeah. In their own way. They really are. It's, it's, I mean, even, even Dennis Farina, who's barely in it, is Jennifer Lopez's father. Mm-hmm. He's fun though. I mean, he has just like a very easy, he comes across as being a father. Yeah. Which is, you know, obviously what he is, but he, his, his, how he interacts with Jennifer Lopez, I mean, he seems like, a father. They seem to have a sort of a pre-existing relationship, and you can buy into the fact that they have, you know, he has raised her, she has been his daughter for his whole life, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, it's, um, Ving Rhames, I've always loved Ving Rhames. Always loved him. Yeah. I was I was upset when he dropped out of the Mission Impossible series, and I'm kind of, I'm glad he's back now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I've always, I've always really enjoyed watching Ving Rhames. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's so good. He's so good in this, his buddy. Um, who, again, you know, an, an interesting multi-dimensional character. I mean, here's a guy who's a bank robber. 
but he always in goes and talks has these lengthy conversations with his sister right and so obviously you know he's instead of being just this this horrible uh amoral thug he he had he loves his family uh he's very loyal to to george clooney's character um and uh who's a jack foley right yeah and uh and so it's 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 really interesting to watch the two of them together because uh George Clooney and Ving Rams in this, again, their characters have such a deep bond. Yeah, and then the chemistry between them is great. Mm-hmm. You know, not just between Clooney and uh, Lopez. You know, the chemistry all around is very good. Yeah. And I, uh, I'm mean, kind of veering off, but I do love the the opening scene with the. Uh, it's it's so clever that the the heist, or the or the near heist, actually. The say, near heist, yeah. Where he you know walks into the bank and gives this whole story about oh my friend is over there is you know has like a gun pointed at this person so if you don't give me the money now they're gonna shoot him but it's all a complete lie and he's just so confident and charming that he gets away with it like that at first you Mm -hmm. know and then it's there's also one thing that Sitterberg does and I know I keep on bringing up like Logan Lucky and Ocean's Eleven but the very short little bits of flashbacks that he puts into his films like a he'll his films will usually be quite linear, but then he'll put in just very quick little flashbacks of how one heist was pulled off because of this one little trick or one uh, one move by a, a character, you know, three days ago is how this has now affected the, the end. And it's very interesting how he just puts in these tiny little bits of... Uh, exposition but it's done in such a charming way that you are completely okay with it you're like oh so that's how all these characters got away with this ridiculous heist even if it's overblown yeah it's still very funny and yeah. cool to watch and, well that's that's what makes his makes his films i mean particularly his heist films so much fun is he shows you all the all these seemingly pointless minutiae these little tiny details in the heist that that turns out have a huge impact on how things play out mm-hmm. um and uh i mean even with out of sight which is not necessarily a heist film he, he he has a little attention not not nearly as much as say in logan lucky or out of out of or uh not out of sight pardon uh, logan lucky or the ocean series mm-hmm. which are heist films and that's their intent but you know just little important things that that he goes up and and talks you know uh talks to the bank teller and gives all these details and he says non-sequential bills, non-marked bills, no die packs, no nothing, you mm-hmm. know. And then he says, I'm going to give a signal and then, you know, whereas other directors might have George Clooney just take money and just immediately walk straight out of the bank. You see him stop by the guy, exchange a few meaningless words with him so that it looks to the teller as though he's he's giving the signal to his, his accomplice. Yeah. And then he walks out of the bank. And then this car doesn't start <laughs> immediately gets caught. Yeah. So that's funny. But um, yeah, I was just looking at the cast too, and it totally, totally passed on me. Uh, Catherine Keener's in it. I love her, particularly after being John Malkovich. Uh, I wish she had more sort of juicy roles. She was in Captain Phillips very, very briefly. And, mm-hmm. um, but she's she's great in this as Adele, the ex-wife, yeah. and the magician's assistant. And uh uh, I didn't even realize this at the time, and it sort of always stuck with me, but the fellow that plays Dick the Ripper, mm-hmm. uh, the fellow whose house they, they go to rob, it's Albert Brooks. 
Oh know, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know why I never put two and two together, yeah, yeah. but there he is. So he was he was also spectacular in this. Mm-hmm. Um, I love all of the scenes uh, at the prison. Yeah, like anything. It's always so funny, and they get into these ridiculous situations and uh, arguments, and it's it's so well written. And the scene in the library. Yeah, that's the one was, I was, I'm thinking of. That's the be- the best I think of. The, yeah, that's hilarious. Where they're getting into a fight, and then the guard comes in. And Snoopy and Jack just opened the book. That's so I was telling you about this over here. <laughs> oh, yeah. The guard's like, what's going on? Dude? Oh, we're just looking at oh, the book. <laughs> yeah. And there's like this unconscious guy on the floor, like right <laughs> nearby. And yeah. It's, yeah, it's a fun movie. And I, I hope that more people watch it because it definitely deserves more credit than it seems to be given right now. Well, the, the interesting thing is, and we were talking about him sort of hiding little nuggets of, of, issues pertinent social issues or or whatever in his films i was watching this and sort of thinking about it again within that context about you know using film as a vehicle for commentary and so forth social commentary economic political whatever commentary i was watching this again and particularly the prison stuff uh i mean obviously the the main theme is this is this relationship between george clooney jennifer lopez's characters and again I think the important thing is you say there's a bit of a disconnect, and, and to me, I think that could be intentional between the first two because there's not a lot of screen time in the middle of the film between the two of them, and I think that might be the point is because the attraction, this sort of magnetic attraction between the two of them is so strong, even if they're separated by all this time and all this type of stuff, they somehow are compelled to move back towards one another. Yeah. Oh, I mean... It, it makes sense uh, for the story and, and the plot, but in terms yeah. of entertainment value... Right. You want to see more of them. They're together. so great together in that first half and so t- uh, together frequently that I miss them not being together in the second half. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it. it's a... I mean, it's not completely logical, but it, it's a relatively believable film. Um, But the issue I was speaking of is, is sort of... And, and, it's easy to miss because, again, you're looking at the heist. and you're, But what happens with Steve Zahn's character and the, and the whole issue of recidivism, and the more frequently you're put into prison, the more likely you're going to become a, a, a hardened career criminal. Mm-hmm. And how Steve Zahn, I mean, when you first meet his character, uh, Studs, he's, he's, he's Glenn something, they call him Studs. He's just, he's a doofus. He's a hapless dimwit. He doesn't know what's going on. I mean, he's, he's mostly just a harmless guy. He probably got put away for, for drug charges. He's just a stoner. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's his affectation. He, he's got his sunglasses on all the time, probably to hide the fact that he's got super bloodshot eyes, right? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, he's just, he's just a simple dimwit. He probably he boosts a few cars. He smokes a lot of weed, probably dealt a little weed, something like that. So, so is he a criminal? Yes, is he a hardened criminal? Is he in there for for murder, and rape, and you know armed robbery? And I mean the really, really bad. No, I mean he seems he just seems he's like, a, he's a, a dummy. Yeah, you know n- not much else. But then he gets caught up with Snoopy, and all of a sudden, he's out killing people, right? And I mean that's that's a very very gut-wrenching scene mm-hmm. is when this poor guy gets pulled along with these really really hardened thugs and 
I mean, that's when that's when he breaks, and and you know he he later into the film he ends up fleeing from them because he's so afraid of of these guys, and so again there's little veiled social commentary there about about sort of the how prisons are run and this this kind of thing um, and sentencing and so forth and putting these guys who have you know repeatedly you know they might be repeat offenders but you know. Oh, I got caught with a few bits of a few ounces of marijuana. Oh, I got caught again with a few ounces, and then they're put into prison with these guys who are, you know, again, uh, who's I mean, who are gonna uh, really persuade them to do terrible things, right? Whether it be through manipulation or just simple peer pressure, right? You know? And especially since they're probably not going to be that intelligent, they'll more than likely go along with it, so. right? Exactly. So I mean, it was. That's sort of hidden in the film and obviously is sort of of secondary or tertiary importance to uh, the relationship between Jennifer Lopez, George Clooney, but, but it's still, it's still there. It's, it's just, again, it's hidden under, hidden within, hidden under the the main story. Um, But again, Soderbergh, I think, you know, um, it's easy to miss those little things in these films, yeah. which in Logan Lucky, I think there's some commentary on, on, on class. Uh, and it's easy to miss that because you're, you're, you get so caught up in the heist. Um, but, uh, yeah, out of sight, it's just, it's, it's just a spectacular film. It's so much fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, I think that's about all I got for that one. Brandon, anything else? No. About that one? No. All right. What are you going to give it out of five? Um, four, four and a half, I would say. I'll go four and a half. Yeah. All right. Well, then let's move on to Traffic, which was released in 2000. Uh, and it stars Benicio Del Toro, Michael Douglas, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Topher Grace, and a couple of some. Erica, uh, Don Cheadle as well. Erica Christian, Christensen, Luis Guzman, who I always love. Mm-hmm. Uh, God, I mean, the cast in this, this is... This is one of those films, in a sense, it's like Contagion or Crash, right? It's got all these multiple storylines going on, focusing on this one theme. You know, in traffic, obviously, it's it's the drug drug trade, uh, and in um, uh, Crash, it's sort of the the LA what freeway highway system something like that i mean it's most i guess it's mostly just the police force or yeah sta- state trooper or something and then like that. in contagion it's obviously this epidemic pandemic whatever whatever you want to call it yeah um and so you get you wind up with these massive ensemble casts yeah. it's so i mean and god look at, look at who all's in in freaking traffic <laughs> it's amazing um and so we'll see we'll hear i'll just in case you haven't seen it i'll give you a a quick synopsis. So a conservative judge is appointed by the president to spearhead America's escalating war against drugs only to discover that his teenage daughter is a crack addict. Two DEA agents protect an informant, a jailed drug baron's wife attempts to carry on the family's business. So yeah, what you're just saying, there's a lot of stuff going on in this film. And uh, just to give you a little quick background, it, so it made $207 million against a $48 million budget, so definitely a more successful one for Soderbergh financially, uh, at least compared to Out of Sight. And it also is a, at a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes, so another strong critical win for Soderbergh. But in terms of it being an ensemble 
film is I really love that with most of his films and with especially with Contagion, which we'll get to. But with this, I actually kind of had an issue with it because I found a lot of the characters to not be as interesting as others like it. Um, and I, I really like Benicio Del Toro. And I mean, all the performances are quite good, but I found it to be very disconnected from one another. And I, it just felt like it was trying to tackle too many perspectives. And I really would have, would have preferred a streamlined take on it. And I mean, I still definitely enjoy the film, but this was a first time watch for me too, I should say. And so maybe on a rewatch, it would be less cumbersome to watch, but I do feel like the editing at times can just be a little too uh, uh, disconnected and all over the place for me. But I mean, for the most part, I was still very entertained, and I think it brought up some interesting ideas. I just was a little, slightly underwhelmed. But hmm. I mean, this is—I have to say, hands down, uh, this is probably still my favorite Soderbergh film. Um, the only—I mean, it's a very minor, minor issue that I have with it—is at times perhaps the editing is not between moving, not in terms of moving between the stories, but. But at points, it feels like the editing, it could have been tightened up just, just a touch. Yeah. There are too, too, perhaps a, too many, a few too many lingering shots, a few too many pauses and th- that kind of thing. But that's such a minor thing. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that it really detracts from the overall experience of the, of the, of the film. But, I mean, it's so, it's so jarring. Um, just watching the film and watching how convoluted this whole thing is, and you have these... Uh, wealthy, respected people here in the United States who are wound up, you know, in, in terms of the drug, uh, drug uh, importing all this, these, these drugs, um, smuggling all these drugs into the United States and all the, uh, the lengths that they go to. I mean, it's crazy. They, they were talking about uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones' character who has, whose husband gets picked up on this stuff. She's sort of threatened and, and then ends up sort of taking over her husband's role in order to keep the money flowing so to, to relieve the pressure on her family. And um, uh, the scene with her, and it turns out it was Benjamin Bratt, I didn't realize it at the time, but the scene between her and Benjamin Bratt, who's one of these sort of Mexican drug cartel kingpins, um, she's talking about... Um, uh, all of the chemical analysis that they've done in order to to turn cocaine and and, and use it in these pressure molded plastic looking toys to smuggle over the border, and then you've got um, Edward Ruiz, right? I forget the character's uh, character actor's name who plays him, but the one who gets shot in the foot at the very beginning of the film. Yeah. And later, when he's talking with the FBI and the DEA agents, and he's discussing how they had done sophisticated regression analysis i mean these are statistical methods that they're using in order to determine when and where would be the best places to it's amazing and then you know there's the other scene with uh uh kirk douglas right the son the younger My, michael, michael douglas. michael douglas okay michael. i always kirk douglas was in spartacus michael yeah. douglas was okay <laughs> michael um but you've got um Michael Douglas's character, who's the, the drug czar, the new newly appointed drug czar, and he goes and is uh, talking to some of the, the people in the border states about uh, the intelligence that they use 
uh, in order to, to, or some of the assets that they use in order to gain intelligence on uh, drug kingpins and their movements in Mexico. And he says, well, their intelligence network is, you know, one of these guys informs them, you know, their intelligence network is far greater than ours. Mm -hmm. And... Oh, uh, sorry for the telephone call, if you hear yeah. that. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. Um, but, uh, um, uh, Michael Douglas asks, Kirk Douglas. Michael. Michael Douglas. Michael. <laughs> uh, asks, why, why is that? And he says, well, we may have more money overall, but they don't have constraints in terms of, uh, you know, uh, congressional oversight or, 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 or uh, legal constraints, things like that. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, it's interesting to hear that and, and just uh, how sophisticated, I guess, these operations that these kingpins are running. Because you think what you see in the papers is, you know, beheadings and mass shootings and this kind of thing, which are just grotesque in, 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 in every way and affront to human, human dignity. But the way that they're able to amass so much money and keep these things going is not just, I mean, the, the fear, the, the brutality of it is part of it, but uh, that's, that masks, I think, a lot of the sophistication of these things. And it's interesting that Soderbergh actually gets at that. Mm -hmm. You can't just treat these as a bunch of thugs with guns and drugs. Yeah. It's, it's, it's much deeper, much more sophisticated than that. And I mean, I think one thing, I mean, we've already kind of touched on it, but the uh, his films are whether they're just a regular like heist film or there's something like traffic, they're very detailed. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll get to the informant and contagion, but I think both of those have very much more detail and complexity than you would necessarily expect with a film like that. Right. And even if it may not have crazy effects on certain characters or uh, the overall plot, it's still very interesting to hear these characters talk like they actually are these real people. You know, like a a scientist talking about um, this epidemic and actually using uh, jargon, if you will, uh, and sounding believable. And even yeah. something like Side Effects, which came out a couple years ago, just a seemingly uh, regular crime thriller, but it has a lot of commentary on the, uh, the ph uh, pharmaceutical system. And it's, I think that's a lot of it is Scott Z. Burns who wrote the informant, contagion, and side effects. He's clearly uh, yeah. very passionate about that uh, type of subject matter and doing that for his films. And so I think, and with Traffic, even though he didn't write this, it's still, uh, again, another very detailed film. And I really appreciate it yeah. for that. Yeah, I, I mean, the stuff that he gets into with the informant in particular, mm -hmm. it's like yeah, all this crap about corn. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. You know, you know, you don't even realize it. Yeah. The, the, the. But um, I think I was, I'm sorry, I was kind of think. I think I was kind of digressing there. But yeah, traffic, the storytelling, it's, it's these, it's these multiple parallel stories that all seem to focus on one overarching subject. And I'll get, perhaps get into this more when we talk about contagion a bit, but for some reason it, it works in traffic. And I think that's because even though these stories, particularly Benicio del Toro's story, I mean, with, with everything that happens around him, 
And then he's he's a police agent, and then he gets picked up by by Salazar, and then it turns out what Salazar is sort of in the pocket of one of the kingpins that mm-hmm. is kind of working on his behalf. Yeah, and then it's this whole story of of shifting loyalties and who's he involved with, and then yeah. the American agents, DEA agents, sort of pick up Benicio del Toro and are able to use him as a you know, and and he uh, his story is 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 really complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly compared to to some of the others, like the 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 Michael Douglas storyline, pretty mm. straightforward. Yeah, uh, and even there, there's a lot of political sort of double dealing and backstabbing that kind of thing, but it mostly focuses on his relationship with his daughter, who is uh, a cocaine addict. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, I think for better or worse, you're thrown into this world. Yeah, and you're you're gonna see every aspect of it, whether you like it or not, and you're probably going to learn a lot more about it than you want to know but it's it's good to know well it's something you know? people should should know or yeah, at least yeah, it's, exactly it's it's you may not want to know it but it's good to know yeah. it. <laughs> part it's parts of i mean it's obviously not the whole thing but it, it is some very i think some very important parts to understanding uh the drug issue the drug drug um i don't know what you would call it, epidemic drug war Drug war epidemic. I, I don't. Like I'm not a big fan of the drug war thing. Nah. Talking talking about it in terms of a war. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, people. I think are finally starting to sort of change and view it as a health problem rather than some sort of paramilitary operation. Yeah. So. Um, I uh, one thing uh, in terms of Soderbergh's style that I kind of had an issue with in this is so his films. If you watch even more than one you're going to realize his films are, are either going to be yellow or blue or both. Yeah. And so um, that, so there's a, a lot of yellow in this film because there's a lot of like desert and r- rural uh, settings, but the blue is, I think, way too much. And really? ha- it, it feels so saturated. Like the scene, hmm. the courtroom relatively early, there's a, a courtroom scene and it's so just vividly blue that I, and it just felt, it was very distracting for me. And so I feel like the yellow works. And usually I don't have an issue with that. I usually like it, like in Contagion or really any of his films. But I feel like with this, for some reason, maybe it was the quality of the cameras or something. But there's just the, the blue is it's too blue for me. Really? Yeah. Because uh, I thought it was really effective in some of the scenes, like particularly the scene, uh, Erica Christensen, you know, Michael Douglas's daughter, falls back into uh, her hard drug habit. And then when she goes to the dealer and sort of the, the dalliance that they have trading her exchange of, of sexual acts for, for drugs mm-hmm. and how the blue filter is used there. And I thought it was really effective. I mean, part of how that sticks so much in your mind, not only is, is it sort of the, the depredations of, of drug use, but the way that that's part, it's so blue, it's so despairing. Yeah. It's so, you know, it, 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 it really strikes home how how awful uh, the whole the whole situation is and how, how awful this this reliance, this dependence on drugs becomes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in some ways, yeah, the, the, the blue filter um, can really it, it does for me at least, I can see it being overbearing in some scenes like like the courtroom scenes where you're talking about, but I think in other scenes, particularly the ones Erica Christensen's character and she's hanging out with all of her pretentious, uh, you know, doofy, drug-using 
uh, prep school friends. Yeah. And um, oh, one thing I I do want to mention, I just do not like Topher Grace. He's just not good in anything. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I watched this and I tried to I tried to like him, but I mean it was it was hard, and and, and I tried to feel bad for him in in Spider Man the third one, Tobey Maguire, yeah, and then even uh even Please the kill, Predator, the, kill Peter Parker, the Predators, the Predator film with Adrian Brody, which yeah. I like that film. I hated his. I mean, you're supposed to hate his character, yeah, but yeah. and it's and I. Rewatched Ocean's Eleven about a month ago, and he actually has this really small part. He has part a very in that. small cameo. And in that. I'm just like, oh. He I, shows I, up I, in that with the guy that that dude who plays Casey on Dawson's Creek. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. I forget the actor's name. Yeah, but he's really do not like him. So. Yeah. <laughs> nope. And uh, this is a film that uh, Catherine Zeta Jones. I mean, she hasn't. There's not a performance that she's given where I'm like, oh, that is incredible. But I mean, she's fine in this she doesn't mm-hmm. do a whole lot for the most part but i think she's good at least better than i think she has been in some of her other films yeah so yeah um i mean the performances all around i think are are, are really strong except for, for a few people who are you know like ones. topher topher grace obviously <laughs> topher <laughs> and um Catherine zeta jones she wasn't bad but it was a little flat maybe yeah and i think at times a little over the top yeah. But yeah. Um but uh I don't know. I thought that I thought the storytelling was really good even though it's it seems a little disjointed. It's there's not it lets the story I think and that's probably why it it, it clocks in at a hefty Michael Bay uh two and a half hours. Yeah. But it it, it lets the story unwind at its own pace which I appreciate. So it's not it's not as though there's a constant blitz of information. You're able to, when the story shifts, it gives you a little time to sort of move with the story, to, 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 to allow your brain to transition in, into the, the new storyline mm-hmm. rather than immediately throwing you into this sort of jarring situation. You have to reorient yourself immediately. Yeah. Which I think was kind of the issue with Contagion. See, I, I'm, the, I'm the opposite. I loved how contagion was structured whereas this i felt it was way too much and so what what, we'll talk about that when we get to it but yeah it's i felt the complete yeah yeah exactly so it's yeah for me the film is i definitely enjoyed it and i'd say it's a a pretty solid soderbergh film but it's a a little uh disjointed a little long and i don't i don't know if i was ever bored but just i was waiting for things to happen and so i wasn't as into it as you are, but I would like to rewatch it. I think it's on Criterion, and so I think mm-hmm. I'd like to pick it, it up and yeah. yeah, pick it up and rewatch it. It's um, I like it. I appreciate the fact that it just lets things unwind how they are, mm-hmm. and I mean it's it's that's I think part of it is it's not you know so many films focus in on the you know the DEA agents, the FBI agents, and they're going in for the sting and they're mowing down all the bad guys and they got their kick ass on Mac weapons and they're blowing down doors and kicking kicking ass and taking names and, mm-hmm. um this it really gets at the whole process you see from uh almost street level uh you don't really see necessarily you see a little bit of that with erica christensen's character when she's going out to score drugs but you see it uh you know to a sort of the middle management which was Catherine zeta jones thing to the kingpins and then to the the top echelons of 
um, of the political process, as in Michael Douglas's character, and everything that they go through in order to try to uh, stem this 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 drug uh, drug ec- epidemic that we're dealing with. Yeah, um, or we're dealing with. I don't know what drug statistics are right now. I actually. Certain types of drugs I know are on the decline, but then others like prescription meds, for instance, and yeah. I think opioid opioid use those are going up are going up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, but uh, I appreciate the fact the way that he I think and it would have been difficult if he had done just a single linear storyline, he wouldn't have been able to touch on everything from oh, from sure, again yeah. street level dealers to the top kingpins and. And in parallel, uh, the street-level agents, such as, you know, here portrayed by Don Cheadle and Luis Guzman, who, Luis Guzman, I always love him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it was good to see him in a lot of Soderbergh films, and I wish he'd, he'd done more. But um, uh, but uh, he was so good in this, and, and he had a tiny part in Out of Sight, which, you know, I liked him in that as well. But uh, I've always liked Luis Guzman, but he and Don Cheadle... The, chemi- the the relationship, the chemistry between the two of them is pretty good. Yeah, again, it's and, another great chemistry yeah. between a pair, yeah. Um, but you see them, you know, street-level agents, all the way up to the drug czar, Michael Douglas's character. And so, again, you've got these two parallel tracks of the law and uh, the criminal agency, and uh, all the way from the bottom to the top. And it would have been different. And um, the only thing that sort of gets washed out is the people who seem to suffer the most um which is interesting i i kind of see the point but kind of i don't know anyhow i mean particularly with with crack cocaine it was more prevalent in in, uh black neighborhoods and and its use was stronger among uh the black demographic and so it's kind of strange that the person most heavily hit by drug use in this is a well-to-do white girl. But then again, I guess the point is the fact that it can, it can affect anybody because this is the daughter of the drugs are, this is the guy who's in charge of trying to stop the flow of drugs and tar trying to, to staunch, you know, this, 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 uh, problem, this drug epidemic we have and what's, what's happening right under his nose. His daughter is, falling more and more, you know, going more and more down the rabbit hole with these, these hard drugs. And so, um, part of me wishes that they, they, uh, Soderbergh had done something a little more, um, in terms of those communities hardest hit by, by this. Yeah, delving into that a little bit more. But at the same time, I can see his choice to use Eric and Christensen as, as, as the addict because it, it has the chance, although you don't see it a lot, but it does have the chance to move across these demographic lines. And that's the interesting thing now is I think, obviously, uh, people with prescription med uh, addictions are, I think, um, more well-to-do white folks because they can afford it. And exactly, the people yeah. with the opioid addictions are mostly, I mean, you look at where those places are most hard hit, and it's like West Virginia. Uh, which again, it's uh, mostly white demographic. So I don't know. I mean, it's 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 a difficult problem. It's a sticky problem, and overall, which I guess is what I'm getting at. And again, that's what Soderbergh was able to portray in Traffic. Um, and in terms of the technicality of the film, I I think his direction, as always, spot on. It's great. Yeah. 
And so. one thing, and I don't think you've seen it, but it definitely feels a lot like in terms of the filmmaking style is Che. Yeah, no, I haven't um, seen it. Which is about the Cuban uh, revolutionary. Yeah. yeah, and it's... Marxist, socialist, revolutionary. Yeah, yeah it's one of my favorite uh, of his films, I think. And it's, again, it, it shows like every aspect of this uh, revolution from Che uh, fighting uh, the government and to him speaking out at the UN. And so I think I maybe just I had seen that before this, but I definitely like that style uh, in a film like that as opposed to this. I don't know why uh, per se, but uh, he, he, again, really shows his versatility with being able to do a, like a handheld, gritty uh, film like Traffic or Che and then go do a, a relatively glossy film like Magic Mike or uh, Love and Lucky. Yeah, so. the Oceans films. Yeah. Out of sight. I mean, they're, he's, he's so good at making those glossy films, though. Yeah. They're, they're so awesome to watch. Yeah, and, and you wouldn't think that that's the same guy who did Traffic. Who did Traffic, or, or right? Or Che, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or even The Girlfriend Experience, which is another just very handheld, strange, experimental film. So it's, yeah. it's very interesting. Well, that's that's the thing that I've noticed about Soderbergh's films is, is and we'll talk about this probably a bit more as we get into some of his other films, but he really likes taking chances on non-traditional actors. Yeah. Uh, which is really strange, because you see in, in Magic Mike, Gabriel Iglesias, right? Um, oh, yeah, that is, yeah. That's, right? Yeah. Uh, and then A Girlfriend Experience, obviously, Sasha Gray. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to remember some of these other ones that he's sort of... Uh, um, i trying to think. Okay. I know I know there are other examples, but they're not coming to mind immediately, yeah. and I don't know why. <laughs> Anyhow, um, but he likes to sort of take chances on putting actors into his films who are not necessarily sort of big name. Yeah, they're, but they're not just like, oh, here, let's be edgy and put in this uh, this non-actor. It's like, how who would best serve the story? Yes, and exactly. Sasha Gray, like adult film star, is. Uh, is the lead character or is the lead actor in Girlfriend the Girlfriend Experience, experience yeah. and it's all about an escort. Right. It makes sense. And yeah. sure, you could put a traditional actor in there, but it may not be as real, especially since that film is very exper- experimental, like I was just saying, and very documentary style. So. Right, yeah. So, I mean, it's, 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 it's interesting to see him take chances with these people mm-hmm. who are not traditionally sort of straight up Actors, this is what I, I act, this is all I do, right? But you know, again, Sasha Gray, Gabriel Glacies, you know, a few other people. Um, I'm trying to remember what else I know. There was there were a couple other examples that I had, but they're not, they're just not popping into my mind mm-hmm. for some reason, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, his films he, he takes chances with them, and sometimes it pays off, sometimes it doesn't. Girlfriend Experience, I think, was. I think it was fairly well received critically, but I, I think, think it was so. a box office flop. Oh yeah, it didn't make like any money, and uh, also the budget was very low, so it wasn't really a. Yeah. It was another like one for one for them, one for me. Yeah, so. exactly. This is a film that he wanted to make, and because he's got enough clout, he was able to do that. So. Yeah. Um, and he actually, I forgot he 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 has won several Oscars. Yeah. Uh, traffic and for in fact, I was just looking at that netted netted four. Uh, I don't know if he got best director or anything like that, but there. I mean, he's 
it's still a film that got quite a bit of uh, critical acclaim and obviously won, won some Oscars. So, I mean, this is a guy who has some Hollywood leverage and he's able to make those films. So sort of, I don't want to call them vanity projects because it's not, it's not just sort of frivolous, mm -hmm. but he's able to make projects for himself. Yeah. Um, so, um, but yeah, I mean, traffic again, uh, I liked, I liked, I thought the use of the filters and traffic was really good, particularly the, the desert scenes. It was very telling, but in those scenes where the blue filter really did come through, I think it did such a remarkable job of accentuating the, the hopelessness, the despair, the depredation. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, it's, that's not in all the scenes, but in those scenes where it does hit you, it does, it really hits you. Yeah. So, um, it's uh i i quite like traffic i think i think overall it's just a remarkable piece of filmmaking yeah so cool. all right well uh it's a it's a solid four for me i give it i give it five go five yeah all right uh yeah and i definitely my guess is i'll probably rewatch it at some point and probably come to love it so um <laughs> I can tell there's there's a lot going on, so maybe it's just the first time watch is a lot to take in. So. There is. I mean, rewatching it myself, even having seen it a couple times before, I wouldn't say it got lost, but it is it is difficult to keep track of everything, particularly Benicio del Toro's storyline yeah. and everything that's going on there, and then his partner Manolo and everything that went on with Manolo, and it's it's complicated. But then again, the subject matter is is itself very complicated yeah so all right well let's uh we're gonna do a little a bit of a jump in time here uh we're gonna skip the oceans films just because i feel like we could maybe do a an oceans show at some point yeah. uh, something like that but uh so we're gonna move on to the informant which came out in 2009 uh, and stars matt damon tony hale uh melanie linsky and maybe a couple others as well mm -hmm. but and the imdb plot synopsis is the u.s government decides to go after an agro-business giant with a price-fixing accusation based on the evidence submitted by their star witness, Vice President-turned-informant Mark Whitaker. And this is a true story. Uh, not, I mean, I don't know about everything in the movie, how truthful it is, but it's based off a true story, I should say. Mm -hmm. And and it made $41 million against the $22 million budget, and it has pretty good critical praise. It's at a 79% on Rotten Tomatoes. But this is, so this is my favorite Soderbergh. I, I wasn't crazy about it the first time I saw it. Um, it's a bit like Inherent Vice in that way, but I've watched it so many times since then, and every single time I watch it, it gets funnier and funnier. I think Matt Damon is incredible in it, and I, I love the writing. I love the ridiculous voiceovers where he's, like, just saying random thoughts, like, mm -hmm. used girl panties in yeah. Japan. You know, it just... And you know, my, How my, is that okay? Yeah, it's like that is not okay. And or my, I think my hands are my best feature. And yeah, just, and all these things. I think for the most part, people are going to think about a lot of the time to themselves. Yeah. But you just never really say it, especially since it's probably weird stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I, yeah, I love the movie, and it's one of my favorite uh, Matt Damon performances. And yeah, it's great for me. Huh. Um. I mean, I hadn't seen this before, and I, I did enjoy the film. Again, even I'll just say, even watching even what I what I consider a sort of uh, uh, 
Soderbergh's more mediocre works that are still outstanding would be top-notch work by anybody else. Right. Um, but uh, this one, I mean, it was clever. It was fun. I really enjoyed watching it. Um, that being said, it wasn't my favorite. The, like, the, the whole inner monologue thing. There was some really funny little commentaries there, but but it just it's, it's like a nonstop rapid fire. Zip, 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 zip. Even when there's a break in what's going on, there's a pause in dialogue between, you know, say Matt Damon and Tom Papa, his, 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 his boss at ADM, the big corn conglomerate, whatever it is that they do. Um, and as soon as the dialogue between the two of them stops, that inner monologue, bam, kicks in. Right. And, you know, I'm Matt Damon. You hear my hand. Look at my hand. You hear the hand. It's just like the Michael Crichton novel. It's yeah, just like it's that. Like, it's just like the Michael Crichton novel. Right. And so... Um, I don't know. I, I've, I've always treasured silence in my personal life and, and in, in perhaps in films a bit too much. I mean, that's why, um, I'm not a big fan of, of voiceover dialogue. Uh, I'm usually not either. So yeah. And I think, I think it was used to some effect in this, but I mean, it's so rapid fire, but then again, that might be, a, that might be a conceit by Soderbergh because again, there are questions as to the mental health of the Matt Damon character later in the film. So this could be indicative of these mental health problems that he's, he's, he's struggling with. Yeah. Uh, because I mean, he's a pathological liar, but is that simply, that's one thing I could never, I couldn't quite figure out in watching this is, is he a pathological liar because of some sort of mental health problem he has, or is he pathological liars because it's, it's a rational choice on his part. I mean, I think it's it's maybe a little bit of both, but I think they it's, they make a point of really not saying which, just to kind of leave it more up in the air. Mm-hmm. But I, it is one thing on rewatching it is you realize how often he is lying because when you first watch it, especially if you don't know necessarily what the movie is about, you just like, oh, this guy's kind of goofy. I don't get why he's saying all these things, but then you realize he's lying about like every single thing that he's doing. Yeah, and when you rewatch it, all those things become so much more clear and you, you put certain plot points together and it's hilarious that you re- you realize how big of a lie this guy is creating for oh, himself. It's massive. Yeah. Everything he does. He just I mean, and that's that's part of what turned me Well, I guess I, I guess that's the whole point of it, is is part it's intended to turn you off because this guy is so sketchy and he comes forward and wants to be an informant to the FBI in, in terms of this price fixing, this whole sort of cartel thing that all these corn corn guys are doing internationally. And, you know, oh, you think, oh, he's a stand-up guy and he's doing this for the... Well, while he's doing all this, he's still taking, like, millions of dollars in kickbacks. Yeah. Right? He's getting more money in kickbacks than he is from his actual salary, which I guess is the whole point to kickbacks anyways. Is, yeah. But, um... <clears throat> You know, and he's stealing company property. He's handing out, like, company cars and giving them to family members and stuff, I guess. And um, just all kinds of just just, just horrible, ridiculous, bad behavior. Just shit that, you know. I love I love just, like, the one-off lines. I mean, the, the best part of the movie for me is Matt Damon, but lines, like, where he says, the phone company just called me and said both of my lines are tapped. It's like, the phone company wouldn't call you. Why would the phone company call you <laughs> and like, tell you that your line did, is tapped? Yeah, it's like, why did Regina say that then? And, yeah. Um, or like, uh, 
it, it's just so um, witty. And the writing, again, written by Scott Z. Burns, who did Contagion, mm-hmm. Magic Mike, and uh, it's just, I love it. I mean, a, a lot of the dialogue, and I mean, particularly a lot of his inner monologue, I think is very clever. And part of the fun to it is is trying to figure out what snippets, if any, of, of his inner monologue bits actually are pertinent to or sort of allegories for what he's going through in terms of the story. Right. Um, and if he is lying or if he's not, if he's actually actually being well, genuine. So. I'll just tell you this. 99% of what he says for the first two-thirds of the it's just bullshit. It's oh, utter complete. bullshit. Yeah. Um, and uh, he's... he's my, my, my uh, step-parents... Uh, owned amusement amusement parks. Yeah, did very well for themselves. Well, that's the, that's the weird thing about it is he pre, he he talks about this at the beginning of the film and he the way he introduces himself is he says you know uh, my parents died in a car crash when I was young I was orphaned I was adopted by a man who who was relatively wealthy because he owned amusement parks. He go oh okay he he just he presents us as as fact. Yeah, and you're like oh that's a little strange, but I can take it. And then you see his real parents are still alive. Yeah, you know, it's just I mean, yeah. much later in the film, it turns out when 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 investigative journalists are looking at this whole thing as a story, and they start uncovering a bunch of his actual parents are still alive and living in Ravenna, Ohio. Mm-hmm. What? <laughs> you know, and because of the way that he introduces himself, he's. I'm Corky, blah, blah, blah. My parents died in a car crash. Yeah. I was adopted by a wealthy guy that owns amusement parks. And you go, okay, fine. If that's if that's what happened to you, if you say that's what happened to you, then why am I, why should I second guess? Yeah. And then it turns out later in the film. And as the investigations go on, they uncover more and more shit. It starts off, oh, you got kickbacks, right? Yeah, well, I got, I got some company cars. And I got maybe one... One one point two, one point five million in kickbacks, it's like, it's and like, then I, it's, I don't know. You tell me how much it was. Yeah, <laughs> and know, then just, it, it later it's like four point something, five point something, and then it balloons up to like seven or eight point something million he got in kickbacks. Yeah, while he was working with the FBI. Yeah, so and, he's working with the FBI, and he's getting all these kickbacks, and he thinks he's not only going to be okay at the company still, but is going to take over. Sort of the executive, some the sort whole, of executive position yeah. running the company, which he already is, you know, fairly high level executive there. But he thinks he's going to take over the whole company mm-hmm. somehow. Like yeah. this, this, this whole investigation is going to sweep everybody away. And then he's going to come out of this whole thing scot-free because he was, he was an informant. Yeah. And I, I love in terms of his uh, lying escalating. I love it when he is talking about his parents dying in a crash. And he's like, yeah, they did own... Um, amusement parks, or the the step parents did, and now I uh, adopted two kids of my own. <laughs> and then even at the the very last scene where he's playing, uh, trying to get a presidential pardon, right? He's still like, and now I have kids of my own, two of whom are adopted. <laughs> you yeah, know, he's still lying. He's still and, lying, and it's just amazing. And it's, I mean, it's terrible that he's still lying, but it's hilarious to watch. Yeah, so. because I mean, this guy, he doesn't know when to stop heaping on yeah. the shit. Like, it's just, it's a nonstop, it's just, I don't know, and he seems to buy into it. He thinks it's such a normal part of his life that he doesn't, there's no switch on bullshit, off bullshit. It's just, he's going, and then the bullshit comes in, and the bullshit goes out, and the bullshit comes in, and the bullshit goes out. And there's no, there's no, there's nothing to stop the lies. 
Yeah. And it, 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 it's as though he can't distinguish or separate the lies from what is reality for him. And so it's such a common thing. And I mean, that's, that's again, that sort of points to, is this mental illness or is this, is this something that he was doing rationally because he understood? And he even says at one point, I, I, when I was applying to colleges, I said I was orphaned because I read a, a piece, uh, an article in Forbes or something that talked about how people who are uh, adopted typically will have a better reception. More sympathy. And... More sympathy from people. Um, and I mean, obviously, I mean, that was a rational choice on his part in order to, to gain some advantage. But, you know, it's still wrong. It's still wrong. Yeah. Right. And, and so I guess there's, there's the mental health issue of, of distinguishing between, you know, right and wrong, not lying, distinguishing between reality and fabrication. And so, uh, I mean, again, they talk about like, he's not bipolar by any means but yeah. he he says you know at one point he talks about you know well i don't know if my parents were bipolar or something like that but i yeah. mean and i guess that's kind of the question which we're i think even at the end remains unanswered is is this guy is this quirky guy actually does he have some sort of undiagnosed <laughs> problem or is he just really that much of a weasel yeah i love it when he's like Mark Whitaker, Agent 0014. <laughs> Why? Because like, I'm twice as smart as 007. <laughs> it's like, no, it's the opposite. <laughs> it's the absolute opposite. Yeah. I just, I mean, some of those things where he's he's, he's, he's first working with the FBI I, were just just hilariously funny. Like the yeah. bit where he's he's recording the conversation with the, with the Japanese conglomerate and he opens up his briefcase <laughs> and he's fiddling with the he's, secret he's recorder. <laughs> and, and then the other scene where they've got the cameras in the room and he walks up, he walks straight to the lamp and he's staring into the camera. Yeah. And I love it when he's, he's in the bathroom and he's uh, recording a, a piece for the FBI and he says the name of a, a French company that the name is very much a French, uh, uh, very French sounding. And he's like, yeah. that's a French company. In case, they, in case they weren't able to yeah. <laughs> discern that. And and so. he's, walking, he's walking through his lobby narrating, Good morning, Liz Taylor, my secretary. <laughs> oh, yes. yes. <laughs> morning, Liz Taylor, secretary. <laughs> and, yeah, a lot of that is Matt Damon. And, but it's, it's so I, – I just love it. And, yeah. Um, I, really, I really enjoyed his performance. And, see, okay, this is, this is what I was talking about is these are – some of the people in this film in particular are not traditional film actors. There's, there seems to be sort of a bifurcation in actors between television and film actors. And Soderbergh doesn't care. Melanie Linsky, TV actress. Most people know her as Rose from Two and a Half Men. Mm -hmm. And she's done a few other things, but, you know, nothing nothing major and certainly nothing on, on par with uh, a Soderbergh film working with the likes of Matt Damon, right? Uh, and then who's the, the big FBI agent on the case? Scott Bakula, mm -hmm. right? Where else do you see Scott Bakula? Yeah, and then and, there's, there's the guy from Community, Okay, I don't remember his name. Uh, who's the the partner of, of the FBI agent? Mm -hmm. um, he's a really good comedic actor. Huh. Um, but yeah, I like I, I'm not as familiar with. I didn't see Community. Yeah. Um, maybe I should go watch it. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I was just thinking. Also, this is back before anybody knew who the hell Patton Oswalt was. Yeah, he's he's great, and, and Tony Hale as well. Yeah. Right. 
So again, this is, uh, I'm glad I could finally remember, but this, these, are, these are instances where you see Soderbergh taking actors who normally wouldn't be in sort of big budgety films mm -hmm. and putting them into, into his films. And again, Soderbergh is a, is a really fairly well-known and well-respected director, and he's taking actors that normally, again, you know, Patton Oswalt, comedian, much like uh, Gabriel Iglesias, sort of in their early stages of their career before they've really gotten big and started getting regular regular roles. Yeah. Uh, of course, I do forget whether at that point in time Patton Oswalt had done uh, the voiceover work for, what was that Disney film about the, the mouse cook? Oh, Ratatouille. Ratatouille, thank yeah, you. Of love course, that. Ratatouille. Love that movie. Little play on words, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a great film, but I forget whether whether Informant preceded or. I think I think this did come after. It came Informant. after. Yeah, this was okay, two thousand nine. So I think Ratatouille was mid two thousand. So people did know who Pat Nozla was. I think so. Okay. But I mean, but not. He wasn't huge. Yeah. And I don't think he's huge now. But I don't think he's huge now. But he is more. Well he is known. better known, yeah. I think now more recognizable. Yeah, yeah. So it was interesting to see him show. Even if it was a bit part. Bam! There's Patton Oswalt, you know, with his file, and he's talking about corn price fixing and stuff. And mm. so it's uh, um, again Soderbergh taking people that normally you wouldn't see, like Melanie Linsky, television actress, Scott Bakula, television actress, who normally directors wouldn't put these people in their films, but mm -hmm. there they are. So uh, Soderbergh, you know, kudos to him for that. Yeah. Because uh, I think both of them actually, he got pretty good performances out of out of the both. Oh of them. yeah, and and Matt Damon gained like I guess maybe twenty five thirty pounds for the movie. So yeah. he has this, this belly that just kind of hangs out. It was out. just worth seeing the film just to see Matt Damon as a as a dumpy middle aged doofus. Oh, yeah, with this big uh, like mustache. His mustache and his goofy hair piece, feathered hair thing, and, and or whatever that's, that was. That's the funny thing. So. He wears his hair, which is not very good. It's like Trump hair, pretty yeah. much. Um, but you're like, that. I guess that could just be bad hair. But then, like near the very end, you see him in a stressful situation, and he slightly messes with it. And you're like, oh, that's a hair piece. Oh. You know, if you hadn't realized that beforehand, you could just think, oh, that's bad hair. But then they make a subtle movement where he, you see it he's shifting. He's actually balding. Yeah, yeah, and then at the end you do see him without it, where he is balding. Yeah, but. when he's getting out of prison. Yeah, yeah, it's just a and it's just a little short quip from Soderbergh. So yeah, um, but yeah, it's it's a really fun watch and it's quite underrated. I think it's just quite misunderstood for the most part because it's really requires you to know. I mean, it sounds stupid, but you, you need to know what's happening. You need to know that he's lying, and you need to know that it's so consistent that it's just more and more ridiculous. And maybe yeah. on the first watch, that's not always clear. And it wasn't to me first time I saw it, so it's worthy of a multiple viewings, I think. Probably. I mean, a lot of the stuff, again, particularly with regard to his, his, his little inner monologues, mm -hmm. um, there's a lot there. I mean, they're they're all really clever, and I'm I'm not partial to voiceovers, but I think these voiceovers, even though they still, I find it a bit jarring. Um, I think there's some interesting stuff said in them. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, it might be it might be an intentional decision on Soderbergh's part again to show sort of the inner. Uh, 
thinkings of a strange man. Yeah, <laughs> like how his mind, how how sort of fractured or 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 disjointed or whatever his mind is. Yeah. I like it when he when he says, uh, "I'm wearing the this guy told me I'm wearing the same tie as you, but the pattern is reversed." reversed. Then he drops. Then he dead. drops dead. <laughs> You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> Turns out it was an aneurysm. Yeah. Okay. So, um, strange things like that, I, I really appreciate. Yeah. So. Oh, and uh, one thing we'll I'll mention now, but it's uh, pertinent to Contagion. So the the scene where <clears throat> Matt Damon is standing next to the lead FBI agent in a hallway, and they're doing a a, fo- a tapped phone call. The the FBI agent sneezes. And then there's a voiceover with Matt Damon saying, oh, now that the germs are going to be on his hand and it's going to be, you know, at his, with his wife at home when he sees her and blah, 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 blah. And then that's actually one of the um, inspirations for Scott Z. Burns for yeah, how he contagion. did Contagion. Because huh. he's, he's like, oh, yeah, because then it's going to be passed from person to person to person. Right. And it can just be as simple as a person sneezing into their hand and then not washing afterwards and so it's he said that that was a very one of the uh inspirations for how he did contagion so oh that's interesting so he's drawing drawing sort of a a a nugget of inspiration i guess from from, himself yeah from himself (laughs) so it must be good to be your own muse i guess yeah uh i don't know i mean the informant it was fun to watch um it was just i don't know the whole voiceover thing uh, even though a lot of it was clever and interesting and fun to listen to, I don't, I mean, it was, it got a bit overbearing at times. There was no breathing room, I guess you could say, right. in the film. Um, which I guess that was sort of your issue with traffic, is there was perhaps too much breathing room. Mm, yeah. Um, but this, it's, I never felt as though there was any moment to catch my breath. That being said, I still thought the performances were great. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was sort of, and interesting, it's 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 Soderbergh is one of the few people I know who can take a, a subject as seemingly innocuous and boring as price fixing within the corn and corn byproduct. Yeah, uh, and corn. make a ridiculous comedy, out and then of it, turn so. it into a ridiculous comedy, which also again touches on the the notion of white collar crime. Yeah, and have uh, be very detailed. Yeah, at the same time, and still be interesting. So. I mean, that's the thing. Is he's talking about all the uses. I mean, he, it's not even this, this company that they, they, they operate. They don't even do corn. Mm-hmm. It's lysine. <laughs> it's a product of corn. And yeah. they do stuff with lysine to, to, to try to figure out, you know, how the various uses for it. And they were, what, doing something to feed it to shrimp for some reason? Yeah. Right? yeah he's talking like about feeding corn to shrimp, and he talks to his son about it at one point. And, yeah. And then uh, using it as a biodegradable element in... in in garbage bags and then all kinds of other stuff and so you don't realize just how pervasive corn is i mean most people go oh ethanol so much of gasoline is ethanol now but yeah i mean that's part of it but that's only a small part of it Mm -hmm. um i mean just the the amount of i mean how detailed this is and the amount of research that burns must put into into uh, his scripts and the the experts that he must talk to. Yeah, I mean these guys. He's, he's got to have like experts on retainer he, for everything. He's kind of like Mark Bowl who did uh, Detroit, Zero Dark Thirty, and mm-hmm. Hurt Locker. They both really pay attention to detail. So. Yeah, 
Exactly. I mean, different types of research that they're doing, but the extent to which they conduct this research is remarkable. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's awesome listening to this, just, again, because of the detail put into the script. Yeah. But, but um, yeah. anyhow. Yeah. All right, well, it's a big five for me. It's one of my favorite films, so. I have to, I'd have to go three and a half for it. Again, I, I just, I felt a little short of breath at times. There was no breathing room, and um, you get a little lost, and as the film progresses, you, and things start uncovering, you get a little lost in terms of what what all Matt Damon's lying about, what he's telling the truth about, and it turns out he's lying about pretty much everything, and... Um, I don't know, particularly in terms of the investigation, I think it sort of drags a touch. Mm-hmm. But um, that being said, I still, you know, a lot of the dialogue I think is still snappy. Matt Damon's performance is spot on. So it's, I don't know, three and a half. Maybe on a rewatch it'll go a little higher. But Yeah. Oh, and I didn't mention it. It made $41 million against a $22 million budget, so not a really a big hit. But it had pretty good pr- critical praise. It's at seventy nine percent. Wait, no, I didn't mention that. Yeah, I think. Oh, never mind. Sorry, I'll edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, so let's move on to Contagion, which was released two years later, and uh, also stars Matt Damon and has Jude Law, Kate Winslet, Marion Cotillard, Lawrence Fishburne, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, Brian Cranston. It's who, a huge who cast. Who doesn't it have? It's a huge cast. Who doesn't it have? Uh, and the health, uh, so the IMDb plot synopsis is healthcare professionals, government officials, and everyday people find themselves in the midst of a worldwide epidemic as the CDC works to find a cure. And so this one made $135.5 million against a $60 million budget. Pretty high for a film like this. Yeah. Uh, then it's at 84% on Rotten Tomatoes currently. Um, and so yeah, it's, this is, so I hadn't uh, seen it for a couple of years and I rewatched it last night and I had forgotten how much I loved it. Like, I think this might be in my top three. Really? I absolutely love Contagion. I love, again, I love how detailed it is. I love the characters and the, it feels, it's terrifying to watch because it feels very plausible. Um, and there are all these real world scenarios where people are completely turning on each other and, uh, it just feels like it could happen tomorrow, especially with everything going on in the world right now. And so it's the, all the performances are great. I love, I think the characters are fantastic. The score is amazing. Cliff Martinez, who uh, would do, uh, he's worked with Nicholas Winding Refn, like Drive, Neon Demon. Um, and he also worked with Soderbergh on the TV series, The Nick. But yeah, the great score. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I love the movie. So Contagion, I mean, it, it certainly was in terms of sort of a thriller. It's a very taut thriller, and I appreciate the fact that again the script is so detailed. But I think to an extent, even more than the informant, because you've got four or five multiple storylines. You've got the Marion Cotillard, you've got the Kate Winslet one, you've got the Lawrence Fishburne one, you've got the Matt Damon one. Uh, and sort of to an extent, you've got the Gwyneth Paltrow one, which is sort of she she served as the vector for this disease into into the United States, North America. Um, 
but all these different disparate storylines obviously revolving around this this outbreak uh this pandemic epidemic again i don't know what the the appropriate terminology nomenclature is but um it's it's so frenetic and i guess that's why i made money is because it's it it, it keeps you engrossed you're, you're engrossed the whole time but it's so frenetic and there's so much jargon thrown at you mm-hmm. and again it's obviously very well researched but it just it just seems as it's it's like a non-stop blitz yeah it's a lot to take in and for being for being a thriller yeah you know, so exactly so not only are you dealing with the constant jumping from one storyline to the next but you're trying to follow oh we looked at these and these, these gene markers here and obviously there's bits of pig dna and bat dna and somehow it's able to attach to the human genome at these points h24 through g76 over here you're kind of going yeah the whole time you're going wait let me get my you know dummies guide to genetics out yeah and go through and so you know i think i think in terms of i mean this obviously feels as though it was made specifically to have more mass appeal Mm -hmm. let's throw some jargon in and let's you know, constant uh, barrage of of action and stuff going on. And even though it's you know not gunfights or anything like that, there's always there's always somebody like shots of somebody running down a hall somewhere. Yeah. Or somebody running down a hall. So somebody putting on a hazmat suit. Um. And uh, it's just it's it's it gets it gets a little overwhelming at times. It's too frenetic, and it's too it's too difficult to follow. And I mean, some of it at times it just seemed a little, uh, overbearing, a little too, a little too structured in terms of what it was trying to do, which is have that marketability, that mass appeal. Mm-hmm. And so I feel as though a little bit of of the story gets lost in 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 the gloss, the glitz, the glamour. Yeah. Whereas some of the films, some of his films, you know, the Ocean's films, Out of Sight, that is, it accentuates it. Here, it just seems to drown out some of what's going, some of what's going on. Yeah. I I mean, uh, maybe it's just because I've seen it many times now, but I, I, I do love the story, and I love, I think in particular, I love Jude Law's character who plays this. Yeah, that's... Um, famous uh blogger quote unquote um who's always trying to find the truth and mm-hmm. i mean sometimes he's wrong but no well, he's like, a scumbag yeah he try, he try, he's trying to make a name for himself for better or worse and um but he's a very interesting character and uh plays both sides um and jude law plays him very well yeah and i i also one thing i do like is it does um, have the chapter titles, um, even though they're, they don't say chapter, but they're like day two, day seven, day 126. Whereas usually with those types of uh, titles, I'm like, ugh, we have, okay, now we're only at day five. and But that's usually when there's an endpoint. Like, you know, there's, let's say, 100 days. Yeah. You're like, we're only at day 40. You know, but with this, it, it feels very natural. And it's not like, oh, man, I have another... 20 minutes it's just oh man this is escalating even more and we're still going and so i even though i was had the same issue with um or had the issue with traffic i do like how it is all over the place and but maybe that's just because i 
personally find them, all the characters to be really interesting, but um, I love how it does show you different parts of the world and how, you know, Tokyo is being affected then how England is doing it. Mm-hmm. And then the scenarios of um, people having to get food and what people can start doing to each other the second that they don't uh, feel safe. And right. Um, so all the looting and the, the yeah. threats of violence and yeah. all which yeah. like, again, with something like Charlottesville or something, it's, well, it's, I'm just thinking about, you know, we had, uh, well, Texas was just oh, nailed of, by Harvey of course, over the yeah. weekend and, and uh, listening to NPR on the way here. Uh, there's a very popular clip on YouTube, Facebook, uh, about a, a man in his community who's just uh, trying to, to deter looters. He's walking around his community with a shotgun. Oh, really? Yeah. I haven't seen that. Um, and the, but he's just trying to deter looters because yeah. it's been, you know, you know, and in, 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 um, I really should go find some way to, to contribute to, to the disaster relief after Harvey. I think there's... You can, yeah, there's a, a lot of different ways. Like, I saw an ad on Facebook, and I think I'm, I'll definitely donate. Um, yeah. But there's, have you seen the water, the news about people selling water, where it's like they're selling it for $99. Which I think is despicable. Exactly, yeah. And so, it's again, it's something like this where, um, you know, people are starting to die, and not everyone's going to get a vaccine. And so, how much are you going to start charging someone if they need help, mm-hmm. or are you going to hurt them? And it's yeah, again, it feels very relevant, very, uh, very realistic. So. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, the whole drug thing at the end of it, and uh, I thought it was interesting, and that's when the film sort of starts to to drag a bit is towards the end. Uh, but I think it's interesting how they how they approach this because it's it's very much something you could actually see happening. Is you know the FDA fast tracks the um, the antidote to this the the vaccine for this virus and then in order to 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 uh, monitor the supply because obviously the demand is going to far outstrip the supply and if there was supply put on the market for this it would only be available to people who have just like deep 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 pockets Mm -hmm. and so what they do is they have this lottery system where what was it every 70 something days uh, so roughly every three months or something, yeah. they would have a lottery draw a day of the year. And, and then people, people who were born. Yeah, people born on that day would be given a allotment of, of the drug. Yeah. Um, and of course, that, that begs questions like, you know, bringing a black market, uh, selling it with these drugs, then would there be a black market for these drugs and how much would they go for on this black market? Yeah. Right. So, I mean, all, all sorts of ethical questions, which, again, I like that Soderbergh touches on some of these hypothetical situations, ta- discusses some of these um, sort of ethical questions that, are, that, that touch on his films. And um, uh, so I appreciate that his films have considerably more depth than a lot of, a lot of films, which would go for salacious cheap thrills, but, but Soderbergh is able to bring in some some interesting questions about, you know, ethics with regard to, like, Lawrence Fishburne's character, mm-hmm. who gets in a boatload of trouble, and, you know, towards the end of the film, even though this is a man who's trying to do the right thing, and what he did was wrong, he was doing it for the right reasons, he wanted to, to vaccinate his wife. Yeah. And um, I thought it was it was really, that was one of the most touching films, scenes of the film, is he, he gets his wife the vaccine and then lies to her about, 
having given somebody else, having taken it himself. Mm-hmm. And then he takes his portion because of what he did in order to get his wife a vaccination. He takes his portion because he's the director of the CDC, right? Um, if I remember correctly. I think, I think so. And he takes his portion and gives it to the son of a fellow uh, that he works with who is uh, custodial staff. Yeah. And I thought that was really touching. Oh, yeah. Um, and again, it, it shows the complexity of these characters. And so this guy who had done this sort of ethically gray area type thing and sort of procuring another an extra vaccine to give to his wife decides not to vaccinate himself, to forego his own vaccination and provide that portion to the son of, of uh, this fellow that works in the office um, with him. You know, not in a director executive capacity, but as as part of the maintenance staff. Yeah. Uh, and I, uh, so uh, I thought that was I thought that was that was one of the, the scenes of the film that that stuck with me. Yeah. I think, more than anything else. I mean, even more so, I think, than when Matt Damon and his daughter, his young daughter, go uh, to the grocery store, and it's it's just it's filled with people just willy nilly looting and grabbing whatever they can. Yeah. And then he ends up having to run out of there because what is it? He sees somebody. He's uh, siphoning the gas. Oh right. And trying to, and and then there's also someone who's really sick, and yeah. he tries to get at them, you know, yeah. or who or who asks for help, and he is so worried about his daughter that, that he flees from them. Yeah. yeah. Um. One thing in terms of a, uh, just being a visceral image is the uh, autopsy scene with. Gwyneth With Paltrow. Paltrow. There's so so Gwyneth Paltrow, who's the the wife of Matt Damon, she dies very early on in the film, and there's all of a sudden this cut, and you see the her face as her, she's a corpse as yeah. her brain is being sawed out. Yeah, and it's like you see, and you like you see the the you don't, the forehead being yeah. peeled back, and you're like, good God, like you don't see them actually sawing her head open. No, or, no. But you see the poking around in the mush that I guess her brain had turned yeah, into. Yeah, and it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, her <laughs> skin is this. fully peeled back. It's like, oh, it's the Gwyneth Paltrow like, autopsy. This yeah, is fun. Like, thanks, Stephen, for giving me nightmares. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was the funny thing about it is Gwyneth Paltrow's, you know, big, big-time A-lister star is in the movie for Very all little. of five minutes. Yeah. She shows up. And she's good. She dies. She's quite good in it. And then, and then you see a few shots of her... Uh, on a business trip in like Hong Kong, and then you see her on the autopsy slab, and that's 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 her role in the film. Is, yeah. is, is she goes from businesswoman to corpse. Yeah, and that's that's pretty much the arc of her story. And I like so. in terms of what we had brought up before about uh, Soderbergh injecting little uh, tidbits of exposition uh, and and flashbacks is. Uh, Towards the end, Matt Damon is looking through her camera because she was on a trip. Now, did it start in Hong Kong? Was that it was some? I think an, an Asian. No, it didn't start in Hong Kong. She was in Chicago, and she had been on the phone with the fellow that she had been in a relationship oh, with that right. she was cheating on Matt Damon. Right. Um, with this fellow, but uh, there's a scene uh, where he's looking through photographs, and it's first it's a guy that she's just kind of friends with at a bar, and she's taking a photo with. Then there's a person who she's like kind of touching hands with and then you see um her uh grasping hands with the chef and shaking it, hands with the chef and yeah. it's giving you little bits of information that's like teasing like oh maybe that's how she got this right. or maybe did she 
give this to someone else. And then mm. at the end, you, you realize what happened. Mm. But it's very just subtle, but very effective. And right. it's very interesting. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a, I forgot, really had forgotten how much I liked it. And it's, everyone's great in it. You know, like Marion Cotillard and uh, Matt Damon and Jude Law. And, Lawrence Fishburne, I always love yeah. him. He's good. I wish he had more roles like this, but yeah. I always really like watching Lawrence Fishburne. Mm-hmm. And then um, Kate Winslet as well. She's yeah. quite good. Even though she's in a relatively short period of time. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so strange because the way that this story is told is very similar to, to Traffic. And in a sense, it's also, in a, in a way, similar to, I guess you could say similar to Dunkirk, but the thing is, Dunkirk, at least all of those storylines are within a bounded geographic mm-hmm. area, right? It all is on that beach, Dunkirk, right? Yeah. Belgian. Uh, and so... Um, but whereas traffic, it doesn't seem to bother me much. For some reason, contagion, I guess just because of the frenetic pace, whereas, you know, and it's sort of the opposite, I guess, for you. Um, for me, traffic, because each part of the story is allowed time to unfold, it allows you to adjust. Okay, now I'm with Benicio Del Toro. Okay, now I'm back with Michael Douglas. Okay, now we're following the daughter. Okay, now here's Catherine and Zeta Jones. And whereas this, it's just, it's a nonstop, Gary Cotillard, Lawrence Fishburne, Barry Cotillard, Gwyneth Paltrow, Matt Damon, Matt yeah. Damon. And, and it's just, it's just bam, 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 bam. And it's, um, it keeps you engrossed. And I guess that's the whole point to it. Is it's, it's intended to draw you and it's intended to, and so in a way, it's, it's meant to pull in an audience. And it's, it's produced, I think it's put together as a more, uh, I hate to use the word commercial, but I think it was intended to be more of a money-making film than um, some of the other stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's almost how the Ocean's films are, like, draw you in as a heist. Yeah. As a fun heist, and then this draws you in as a... Thriller. Kind of Real-world thriller. Yeah. You know, so... Um, but it's too it's too nonstop, and then it's just, you know, the guys in the hazmat suits, and they're, the centrifuge, and the blood, and the big cryo chambers, and the thing, and then they... Lawrence Fishburne and somebody's looking at, and um, Elliot Gould's character, right? What was that all about? Mm-hmm. I guess the fact that he found some sort of genetic marker or something was able to produce. He was able to reproduce. He was the first guy that was able to reproduce the virus in a laboratory setting or something. I think right? so. Yeah. Uh, even though he had this just tiny little dinky private lab that was in a lower tier, rank lower ranking tier something something something. Um. But he was there, and then he just sort of dropped out. You don't see him again. Yeah. And it's all this this very technical stuff, which obviously points to the detail, the the research done, uh, the level of research and detail put into these films. But for some reason here, because it's it's so nonstop, it's so frenetic, you don't have time to, to take in that information. Plus, the information here is of such a technical nature uh, it's hard to put it in context and you're not really given a lot of time to analyze or think about it. Mm-hmm. So it's genetic markers and gene this and reproduce and lab that and la 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 and then you, you're instantly, you know, back to Matt Damon and looters and, right. and daughter I mean, and her boyfriend. And For me, it's, it's, it's strange because, like, sometimes I really love just a very tight film like this or something like Dunkirk and then I'll, but I'll love a very slow-moving film like, I don't know, The Revenant Ghost story? But, yeah. 
And that's, you know, that's I mean, two that's, hours. And... That's an hour and a half. Yeah. And I've never, I mean, I was like, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, uh, but like the, you know, the Revenant that's, you know, two Revenant and a half was... hours, that's very slow moving, but I absolutely love every second of yeah. it. And so there's sometimes just weird middle ground films like Traffic that almost kind of have both um, styles to them that don't really work for me as much as something like that's just so streamlined, like Dunkirk or Contagion or well, Ocean's Eleven or something. See, that's the thing is you say Dunkirk was streamlined, which the editing job and how it's put together is very, it's that's very streamlined, but it's, there's such large pauses, there's so much space mm-hmm. in the film. And it's, it's not, it's not filled with dialogue. It's not filled with action. It's just, you know, I'm thinking this, the shots of Tom Hardy flying around and he's flying and he's looking at the map and he's making marks on it. And it just, it just, it, it breathes. Yeah. It's, it's so spacious. Um, and that's what, that's a lot of what you get with traffic. And that's obviously what you get with Revenant. And another one of my favorite films from the past few years, The Master. Yeah. Right. It it's it's two two hours twenty minutes two and a half hours right the master, and it's got all the space, in between it and that's I I really appreciate that and and some films you know if I'm going in for an action film I don't want space, there are some some action films I think that do make use of space and I, I'll have to think about that actually to to have any, to think of any that come to mind, but I know that there are some action films out there who do use space, um, Sicario, Sicario yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a big one. That's a good one. Yeah, um, I guess you could say Wind River as well if you're thinking about yeah. Taylor Sheridan to 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 some extent. But, mm-hmm. um, but well, maybe I think those are more thrillers than they are necessarily action films. But the action sequences are so good, taut. Yeah. That, um. But uh, this is uh, Contagion strikes me as being even though it's it's put together so well, it's so frenetic and it's so constant barrage of stuff information action uh, story law whatever that it's it's hard to really take in and digest everything mm-hmm. particularly given the amount of detail that's gone into this and whereas in the informant uh the informant at least i can take in a lot of the information because it's just the single line of information it's the corn stuff and matt damon and his lysine and there it is. Yeah. Um, whereas Contagion, it's it goes from the drugs, or it goes from the disease, and then the drugs, and the testing the drugs, and then the distribution of the drugs, and then where to, how did this disease begin? And I mean, it's 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 it becomes a, a bit difficult to follow all this stuff. All because it's just it seems to all happen all at once. Right. I mean, for me, it's like I. I really like these, uh, I mean, this isn't based off a true story, but I really like real, real world, um, scenarios. Mm -hmm. And I, I love characters or films that have just characters talking about things that they're passionate about or are very knowledgeable of. And so someone like Jude Law, who's, I mean, not necessarily that good of a person, but he's still so passionate about what he, um, is doing and usually quite knowledgeable whenever he's talking, I'm fully in. And then Mm -hmm. someone like, um, Marion Cotillard or uh, anyone in the CDC, just the what they're saying, even if I may not understand it all, it's still very fascinating to me. Right. And I still want to go learn more about it. Right. Um, and same thing with like something like side effects. They're talking about 
all these prescriptions and side effects, on it, you know, uh, and I'm very interested in it just because they're they feel passionate about it, and I feel like Soderbergh is aware of that, yeah, and is maybe passionate about it as well, and so he emph- emphasizes that. Well, that's what's so remarkable about Contagion, or, or I haven't seen side effects. I really should watch. I've heard good things about mm-hmm. it, but um, he's able to take sort of non-traditional scenarios and turn them into like like looking at the outbreak of a virus, looking at a pandemic, an epidemic, and turning that into uh, an eminently watchable and in this case actually very you know financially lucrative, profitable film. You know, uh, that's something really, I think, Soderbergh and very uh, only a a small handful of other directors can do. Like David Fincher, I think. Yeah, David Fincher. You know, like Um, uh, Zodiac and Jake Gyllenhaal talking about his passion and and his knowledge of everything and feels similar to this at times. And um, it's it's interesting, again, uh, he's able to make an eminently watchable and interesting film from a subject that's seemingly, you know, oh, it's a film about diseases. What? <laughs> you know, and that's that might be your gut reaction, and then you watch it, and you go, okay, that was actually watchable. That was worth watching. Yeah. Um, so, that being said, I still did have some, I mean, compared to some of his other films, I did have some serious issues with, with, with Contagion. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that had to do with the pacing. And I'm not a big fan... I think for some reason he he pulled it off with traffic, but I've never been a big fan of the multiple. Like I hate Crash. Oh, I, just, I oh, I Crash. Well, he didn't do Crash. I though. know he didn't do Crash. It's terrible. That though. was I think Paul I, Haggis, right? I, yeah, I hated it. I hated Crash. So it's so preachy and. But I mean the whole the whole multiple overlapping. It's all, it's all over the place and it's yeah, yeah storylines thing. And he does Crash. that a lot. Um, there was another film that he did a couple of years ago, Third Person, which was a horrible. Oh, I know. I didn't see that. Horrible piece of garbage. <laughs> dumpster fire. Yeah, dump, dumpster fire. Dumpster fire. Garbage. Yeah. Um, and it's all these parallel. I mean, that wasn't even. That was only sort of. I think three different parallel storylines. Um, so I'm not a big fan of this multiple storyline thing. Mm-hmm. For some reason, and I, I'm still trying to figure this out. I mean, this is something I've been mulling over my head for the past few days. But for some reason, it largely works in traffic. But in films like Crash and Contagion, it really it sort of puts me off to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Crash, I know. I mean, it was just oh, it's so all over the place. And Contagion, at least these storylines are contained, and even though they're hopped one from another, it's the Marion Cotillard, it's the Jude Law, it's the Matt Damon. But even so, just jumping from one to the next, and particularly with Contagion, it's the pace. And I think that's that's the, the crux of the issue. There is between Contagion and Traffic. Traffic, as I said, I've got more breathing room to sort of ease into each story as it's brought up. And so I, I'm given the time to sort of digest and mull over, think about, and interpret, analyze what's going on. Whereas Contagion, it's just a blitz. It's frenetic. It's so fast in terms of throwing all this very technical stuff at you. And really the only breathing room you get is the Matt Damon bit because that's the only part of the whole story that's not technical. It's just looking at the human, mm-hmm. the, the toll that this takes on, on, on uh, average humanity, not the people involved with finding, finding the disease, finding the cure, overseeing the distribution of this cure, uh, 
or even the media and their representation as, as again, display, uh, demonstrated by, or displayed or, or whatever by the Jude Law character. Um, but Matt Damon is the only time that, that a lot of jargon and technical detail isn't thrown at you. And um, even then, it's, it's still relatively frenetic. Mm. Uh, just because I mean you, the looting scene, he's in the story, he's out of the story, he's running away, and then you know the other stuff where he's constantly yelling and gnashing his teeth and pulling, pulling the daughter's boyfriend off of her and, and yeah. kicking him in the in the rear and telling him to to piss off and you know, so it's even then where you where you expect a little more breathing room, it just boom you know immediately back into the action and those are brief, very brief interludes. Um, so I mean it's all and it's good it's put together in a, in a in a good I mean the whole film technically is is well done but it's well done in a way as to it's it's intended to make money which it did um maybe Soderbergh wanted to make the film exactly this way but I I still think it feels as though there's an element to it that it's this is what we can do in order to make some cash off of this film yeah. Uh, and he does a good job. I mean, he knows, obviously, how to pull the audience in. And he does a really spectacular job of pulling the audience in with this. But... Yeah. It's... It's it's a lot. It's a lot to take in. Yeah. All right, well, it's... it's You know, it's probably in my top three, so it's a five for me. Um, I loved it. I'm going to have to go three on this Oof. one. Brutal. Which, yeah, I know. That's, that's about the lowest I can give a Soderbergh film. But, I mean, I, I watched this, and I wanted to like it, and I thought the performances were great. I thought the direction was great. The cinematography was great. The script was great. But it just it was too frenetic in its pacing, and I'm, I'm not a big fan of the overlapping storylines in tandem mm-hmm. um, simply because all the jumping around. And, again, in this one, whereas traffic jumped around to give you a little time to ease into the storylines, this one, it's just it's, it's, con- it's, it's lot, nonstop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that might be the biggest difference in terms of, mm-hmm. even though it's a similar structure in terms of the storytelling, how that structure is utilized yeah. is very different. So, oh, And if you hear rain, we're having a huge rainstorm outside, yeah. it seems, which we had the issue with, I think, the last show. And so, yeah, sorry if you hear some rain, but... Um, I right. like it. It's a soothing sound. Yeah. Of course, my heart goes out to... All those people in, in Texas, yeah. around Houston. So, I'm hoping the so I have a Green Day concert later. Cannot wait to go, and I'm hoping that it's not horrendously uh, stormy. But yeah. we'll see. Hopefully, um, it lets up because the drive to Raleigh in this weather can be yeah. traumatic. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to Magic Mike, so I can go home and get ready for the 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 event of the year. Um, so Magic Mike is was released in 2012. Um, Stars Channing Tatum, Alex Pettifer, Matthew McConaughey, Olivia Munn, Joe Manganiello, something Manganiello. like Manganiello, and Matt Bomer. And the plot synopsis is a male stripper teaches a young performer how to party, pick up women, and make easy money. Um, and, Wrong. Yeah, exactly. Who comes up with these synopsis? I, I don't know. Somebody um, needs to be really just hit over the head. Yeah. But this, so... Uh, it was 81, it's at 81% on Rotten Tomatoes, but this is the most staggering thing. Against a $7 million budget, it made 167. Because it's women. Yeah, and it's, but it's only a $7 million budget. That's pretty low for a, 
a film like this. Yeah, you would well, think it's I mean, maybe 20, 30. Well, I mean, if you look at it, there's no special effects. It's all sort of shot hand cam, handy cam, shaky cam type stuff. Yeah. Um, which it's not super, super shaky. And don't, don't get me wrong. It's not like you're going to get motion sickness watching this film. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's... It, so I mean, I, it's I was hesitant. Super low budget. Yeah. And again, most of the most of the stars that he has in Okie, he has Channing Tatum, he has uh, Matthew McConaughey, big 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 name people, mm-hmm. big hot commodities, right? But besides them, not not many. So. You know, again, taking a chance. Olivia Munn. <laughs> yeah, she's she's okay. Yeah, but I, I mean, mean she, I was. I thought uh, she was good in this. Yeah, but, she's good. You know, nobody knew who the hell she She's was. She's nobody. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and most of the other cast, most of the rest of the cast, some people, I think, know Joe Manganiello because he was, what, in True Blood? Yeah, I think so. Um, but besides that... Yeah. You know, he's just... nobodies. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, the, 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 the budget for the film, I'm sure, was it was it was dinky. Yeah. And it made huge money. Yeah, so... I mean, so I, it, I feel guilty watching this film because I know why it made money. Yeah. And so I was re- really hesitant to watch this. I thought it was just a reg- like a girls' night out film, um, like strictly for like a female audience. But it's really kind of the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, there's stripping in it. There's, you know, guys flashing, you know, rock hard abs and all that stuff. But it's very much a character driven um, and at times uh, uh, dramatic story. Yeah. Um. About some people that are just in a bad place, trying to make a good life for themselves and not always being able to, and um, and having others persuade them to do otherwise or bringing them down. And um, the Matthew McConaughey in this is amazing. Yeah, he's, he's great. I mean, Channing Tatum is great too, but McConaughey is phenomenal. He's just yeah. ridiculous. Well, he, he plays up the whole persona that you first sort of catch a glimpse at. In uh, Days and Confused, yeah, and then he just really plays it to the hilt mm-hmm. in in Magic Mike. Like he's this veteran uh, stripper who is the leader of all these these guys, and um, he's just so over the top and <laughs> full of himself, really. Yeah. And one thing I did find in- interesting is how it does show you the the behind the scenes of how a like a male strip club like makes it makes its money they're like oh hey can you if you can get two girls from this club we'll get this much money yeah and then we'll also give you this perk if you can do that yeah and then they you know count the money at the end of the night and put it in a little ziploc or a little uh zip bag just like we do over at the coffee shop right like oh yep got to go to the bank yeah you know they do the exact same thing as like a coffee shop does at the end of the night and so it's interesting like it was fascinating to watch this because i mean you have female strip clubs, right? Female adult entertainment. And, and they don't have to, I mean, they do, they do, you know, go out and market and that kind of thing, but they don't, it doesn't seem as though they do it in the same way that I guess strip clubs the, for men, this, male strip clubs do. It's much more of a self-awareness. I think women have, because the shows are much more elaborate, whereas you can go to a male, like a, uh, Man yeah, men don't care <laughs> what's going on wanted, as long as there's naked You want to do your thing, go to a strip club and see people you strip. Want a, you want a beer and some, some naked breasts. Yeah, that's, that's a free buffet. About, right? you know. Yeah, exactly, your buffet. <laughs> and and so, $10 all-you-can-eat steak and lobster buffet. Exactly. So, <laughs> I mean, um, who goes to a strip club for that anyways, I don't right? Know. I don't know. But then, so for women, at least in this, how it's presented it, is it's much more of a show. 
like here we'll have three guys out on stage and they'll be like cowboys. Yeah. And then they'll oh there's, now this he's Tarzan now. And so it's gonna there's there's like whole dance routines and synchronized dance routines yeah, and the whole thing. And it's ridiculous, but it's so funny to watch and it's really interesting to see how the other half lives, if you will. Yeah. And it's it's very funny in that and it's I think it's really meant to be comedic. Well that's the, that's the, the thing is so. after a while after a while the the stripping didn't even bother me because you know after a point you become inured to it right yeah you know, oh okay but what still bothered me was the dance routines and how ridiculous i mean channing tatum is an amazing dancer he's pretty good but when he gets doing his thing he's pretty his, good yeah when he was by himself he's actually quite a good dancer but i mean the the, the choreographed bits that all these other guys did together was so ridiculous yeah i felt more uncomfortable watching the dances not because it's like you know oh shirtless men gyrating on stage, but because they look so stupid doing this shit. Yeah. Not because, you know, I mean, these guys are all like, I, w- I wish I looked like that. Mm-hmm. But just like, here I am in my chaps and my cowboy hat and I got my guns and I'm gyrating on stage. And yeah. you're just going, oh, my God, you're a grown man. And you're yeah. doing that. Yeah. You know. Um, I love it when the, the young main character is pushed out on stage and he, they actually just show him having to literally strip all of the clothes that he's wearing like he has to take off his socks yeah, and his sneakers funny. and his uh uh zip up hoodie yeah. and all things whereas you know most of the strippers they're in a costume where they, they can got just the rip it right off but he has thing, to literally yeah. in front of like a huge group of you know 20 something year old women just take off you know dirty socks yep. and all these things and then go dance up on someone for the first time that he's right. you know and it's it's so entertaining and I'm I hope more people who may be hesitant to watch it go see it because it's a really fun movie yeah well i mean just it's it's one of those things where you have to you know particularly if you're a guy you have to sort of grapple with your masculinity <laughs> and get it under control and say okay i'm i'm confident enough in my in my in my manhood and in, in who i am as a person that i can go watch this yeah um so if you can if you can do that i mean it's actually it's actually a very compelling story mm-hmm. uh and you again channing tatum God damn him! Yeah, he's, he's good. He's such a he's such an amazing actor. He's such an amazing dancer. He's a good looking guy, and he's so freaking cares. You want to hate him because he's got everything going for him, but you 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 can't. Yeah, because he's just he's such a nice guy. He's yeah. a genuine. He's a sincere person. Yeah, and and that's in terms of both him as a person and how he portrays his characters, and that's the thing in, in this is is Channing Tatum in real life is you know he's Mister Wonderful and all that. But in this film, he's so down on his luck. Yeah, like they, they, he's uh, a carpenter on like during the day, so carpenter by day, stripper by night, yeah. and so it's very interesting to see him do these very exotic dances and then go get cargo shorts and boots and go build a roof. Right. You know, and so yeah. it's cool to see how it looks glamorous from when he's on stage and then but his actual life may not be that amazing well that's that's the thing is you feel sorry for him because he actually he has a dream he wants to design furniture and he actually knows something about it mm-hmm. he's not just like i want to make chairs yeah he actually is able to to recognize different styles of furniture and name that i mean he knows his stuff 
and he obviously would be good at doing this and he would put the effort and he could make he could make money if he ran a business doing this and so he's been stripping because it's easy money which he can then put towards a business but he, he goes into the bank and again this is where you see that a, a lot of these people in Soderbergh films here it's it's strippers you know male strippers in particular but I think strippers in general which is another interesting thing is is that this comes up it comes up a bit in the big short which Remind me to revisit that a bit, but, um, but how these people on the fringe can't seem to, he wants, he wants to get into sort of normal quote unquote life. He wants to open a, 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 a custom furniture business, but he can't get the business loan for it because his credit is just, and also sometimes he's almost working against himself. Like he's having, he's having to deal with or train this kid who's kind of the, um, new young starlet and then he's also but his lifestyle is still very crazy like he's having threesomes with Olivia Munn yeah. and all these things and so he's at times his own worst enemy but it, also at other times he's not he's really um, trying to create a better life for himself yeah. he just doesn't always uh, follow through which is so understandable that's, that's the thing is I never quite understood the dynamic between uh Channing Tatum's character, and I guess who was it, Matt Pettifer, the the kid. I, I think Alex. Alex, Alex Pettifer. Pettifer. Okay. Um, you think when you first see them, oh, Channing Tatum's going to corrupt this kid and and bring him into this lifestyle and turn him into, and the kid does eventually fall to corruption. I mean, drugs and fall, runs afoul of drug dealers and the whole thing. But, I mean, it, to what extent is this Channing Tatum's fault? Because Channing Tatum himself, his character, Magic Mike, doesn't ever seem as though that's his lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't see him. I mean, he does drink and he sleeps around and stuff, but he's never really, like, heavy heavy duty into drugs. He doesn't... It seems as though, even in the fringe lifestyle, he's sort of on the fringe. This isn't something that he wants to do for his whole life. This yeah. is not, he, like, he's not... It's a means to an end. Guy. To yeah, get his real goal. Yeah, and so he he does lapse into some of that lifestyle, but that doesn't seem it doesn't seem as though that's that's him. Mm-hmm. And that's the interesting thing is 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 this sort of inner turmoil. And I mean, think that's 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 the whole point of the film is it's not even necessarily his relationship to his sort of protege. It's the struggle that he has. It's this inner turmoil. It's the struggle that he has with himself between staying with the easy money, staying with this sort of fun, fast-paced lifestyle or wanting to leave that all behind so that he can actually do something to move towards his more, I guess you could say laudable, although there's a, that's a loaded sort of word, again, mm-hmm. because you can't... How do you judge these guys? If this is the lifestyle they want to leave, then that's, that's to them. But, you know, in terms of Mike, this more... I guess not, maybe not laudable, but lofty or or genuine goal of designing custom furniture, mm-hmm. um, the sort of artistic expression outlet, which he does actually have in stripping. Because again, he's one of, he's one of the few strippers who actually puts effort into his routines and that yeah. kind of thing. He's, I mean, which again is very refreshing and surprising about a film like this. Yeah, you wouldn't think, oh, this is also going to be about a, a guy trying to fulfill his dream of designing furniture. He's a stripper, but also he has this, you know, dream. And so it's mm-hmm. it's interesting like that. But in terms of comedy, I love some of the scenes like where Alex Pettifer is in the early stages of 
of dancing and they're at the gym and Matthew McConaughey yeah. um, gets right behind him and they do this like grind against the, yeah. the mirror. Like, oh yeah, you got it. It's, yeah. yeah, it's all you. You know, you're, you're the guy. You're the man. He's and, like, strip. And the guy, you know, Alex Pettifer just like takes off his shirt and yeah. takes off his pants. Matthew McConaughey's, what are you doing? Yeah. And um, <laughs> What are you, 12 years old? The yeah, locker room? Yeah, exactly. And then when the, the sister of Alex Pettifer sees all of these thongs and stuff that he's bought from Channing Tatum, <laughs> She like he's shaving his legs in the bathroom, right? And she's like, "I need to talk to you about this box that I see outside." And he's just like, "Fuck me," <laughs> you know, because he's this. He just has a huge thing of colorful thongs right. in a box. Yeah, she's like, "I'm not gonna judge you." <laughs> you it's know, your lifestyle. You know, yeah. I don't care how you live your life. And it's like a commentary. It's like that's ridiculous to have stuff like that. Yeah, you know, no matter who you who you are. So yeah, but it's. Well, I mean, the back and forth, I, I don't know the actress who played Brooke. Um, again, uh, Soderbergh working with, with lesser-known people who, who he gets these remarkable performances out of them. But um, uh, the back and forth between her and Channing Tatum is awesome, particularly when the, the first time that they meet. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the kid, you know, Alex Pettifer's character goes home, Channing Tatum's there, Channing Tatum says, you know, your brother mentioned something about breakfast. And she's like, what the hell are you talking about? I'm not making you breakfast. What the hell? I'm not doing it. He's like, whoa, I just wanted to. I, he said you like breakfast. I thought we could go get some breakfast. Yeah. And, you know, so um, it was it's funny because she's she's very standoffish and judgmental. Uh, and then, you know, again, Channing Tatum, because he's so damn charismatic, ends up winning her over. Uh, but the back and forth between the two of them. Oh, it's good, yeah. It's just, it's awesome. So, again, I don't know how Soderbergh is able to set up all these characters. I mean, you see it in Out of Sight. Uh, you see it again in George Clooney and, and Julia Roberts in Ocean's Eleven. Uh, and you see it in Magic Mike. But he's able to set up these these leads with female leads and then just the chemistry between them. And, and, it does, and you know, a lot of films... I think the chemistry between the male and female leads when there's some sort of romantic element to it falls flat. But for some reason, the Soderbergh films, it always works when there's a very obvious immediate chemistry between the two or, or spark between the people, such as George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez and Out of Sight, or when it's a more contentious standoffish relationship like you see in Magic Mike. Mm -hmm. Either way, the relationship, the chemistry... Soderbergh is able to set it up and direct it in such a way that it's just, it's awesome. It's yeah. just wa watching these two people play off one another. It's always so good. Yeah. Yeah, so if you're one of those people that are, you know, like I had said before, if you're hesitant, you're not sure if you want to, would like it, give, give it a chance, and I think you'll you'll thank us later, right into the mm -hmm. film buds, and you'll, you know, thank us later. Yeah, I was, I was hesitant to watch this. I mean, I'd heard a lot of good stuff about it. You know, a lot of a lot of friends had recommended it and said, "Yes, it's it's you know, it's definitely worth a watch. You should go see this." I mean, it is first of all a Soderbergh film, but even so, if you can move past the subject matter, watch the film un unravel. It's really a good story, and I mean, it is. It is. You know, as this, as it goes on, it becomes more and more compelling, and and you know, okay, the stripping routines are always there, but they sort of fall into the background after a while mm -hmm. um and they're more not the not the focus of the film but almost like comic relief yeah exactly um but yeah it's um i guess that's about 
all I got. Um, what are you gonna give it a five? I gotta give Magic Mike a four. I'll go four and a half. Um, it's yeah, it's one of my one of my favorites. Maybe not top three, but definitely up there for me. But uh, all right, well, um, I guess that's all five uh, of the Soderbergh films. There's plenty more that we could have talked about, but maybe that's yeah. do that for another time. Um, but we hope you enjoyed it, and thank you again so much for downloading. Um, but if you want to reach us, the Podcast at gmail.com. Feel free to send us comments, questions about this or the, the regular weekly show that we have on iTunes. Um, and you can also reach us on Twitter and Facebook. And um, Brayden, thank you so much, man. Sure. It's really appreciate it. Um, Always happy to come in. And so make sure to tune in next week for the regular uh, show. We should have some spe- special guests on. Um And so that'll be fun, but hopefully you enjoyed this a lot. Um, And until next time, we'll see you later.